Hello. Hello. Why don't you go let me know how it went? Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> I was, okay. like, waiting on my own. Okay, I guess uh, oh, I, was, <laughs> I was waiting on you because I thought you were usually you say, oh, everything's fine, let's go. Oh, okay. yeah, no, everything's fine. I'm all discombobulated because I actually got my uh, Corona booster today plus the flu shot. Same oh, you got, the blues, the, you got the booster. <laughs> yes, the booster. <laughs> um, so, did you see all this new stuff? It's very confusing. I was saying, well, let people know when you can get the booster. They already said you can get it. Now they're yeah. saying they're going to let us know when you get it. They changed their minds back and forth. It was like right before it was about to come out. They said, oh, no, don't do it. And then they said, oh, no, go ahead, do it again. But we recommend it's only for this group. I'm like, well, I'm not in those groups, but... There's other things I can get in for, just like last time. So I'm like, fuck it. You know, I see Biden's running up there and doing his and saying, go get your shot. Go and do it. Because I'm hearing all this scary shit about the current one that's out there. And how when they made these originally, they were playing on the original version that we had. I'm like, well, this is good. It gets you through that. You won't go in the hospital. But now that it's like 20 times more infectious (laughs) and worse worse, uh, outcomes, I was like, "Uh, you know what? Let me be safe. So it was past the six months. and Actually, just past the six months. Right, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. And, um, yeah, because I, I got my second shot right after you guys got yours. And, right. You know, you, you gave me the info. And uh, I just got my booster, I guess, over here in Jersey City. It was like, well, you have to wait till October unless you have, you know, well, yeah, here's a list of stuff I got going on. Okay. No, <laughs> but oh, so you got oh, so all right, so you see how you are tomorrow. I'm curious. This this, this one kicked my ass. Well, that's the thing. You got Moderna, and that's known to do that. Mm. Pfizer, I had zero reaction the first time. As a matter of fact, the first one I got, I felt more energized and better the next day. Uh, second one, I don't believe is anything, and this one doesn't seem like anything so far. You know, it's like nine thirty in the morning today. So uh, oh, yeah, you would feel something by now. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, if I do come off a little discombobulated, you know why? <laughs> and you got the flu shot, too. Yes. Uh, well, I saw they were offering all this crap. I'll do the flu shot and do the pneumonia shot. And I'm like, I don't know how many arms they're going to give you because they did one in each arm. So I'm like, all right, just, I'll do the flu shot with it, fine. Yeah, I probably should get that. I don't know. Doesn't this fucking protect you against all You would think stuff? so, right? I mean, how many freaking shots do you need? And they're like, oh, there's one for shingles and there's one for – and they're bringing back all these weird diseases. Like, the whooping cough. I'm like, what? Uh, you know, okay, HPV and uh, what, what the hell else was there? There was, uh, ooh, not syphilis, but it might have been something crazy like that. Tetanus was there. I'm like, what, is all this stuff coming back? <laughs> what the hell's uh-huh. going on here? <laughs> Spanish flu is coming up next. And what else? Uh, A lot of people are getting shingle shots, too. Yeah, what was going on? So, I thought that was kind of a beaten thing. Yeah, I didn't know much about it. My friend got it to. Uh, Three years ago? No, my friend's wife got it three years ago. Yeah. He says she couldn't wear clothes. It was outrageous. Anything touching her body was painful. I'm like, are you kidding me? Well, my wife works with a lot of old folks, but she was like, yeah, they keep talking about shingle shots, and somebody got the shingles, they said, I'm a shot. So she was actually like, maybe you should get a shingle shot, too. I'm like, how many shots are you going to give me a one, you know, pass through? So I just got the two. But. Yeah, I heard the shingles one's rough, too. Yeah. But uh, anyway. All right, here we go. Since the weird since inside the gold mine, your 
Guide to All Things Wild and Wonderful in the World of Cult Entertainment. Tonight, science fiction with a message the dystopic visions of the countercultural era. Well, here on Weird Scenes on Podbean. So you're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, we'll be doing some uh, unrelated, but and then again they are related, early 1970s, well late 60s and 1970s, science fiction films uh, based on the old style of more hard sci-fi and message-oriented films that were the way that young filmmakers and dreamers and idealists brought their message across in the days before the corporatism took over with the likes of Lucas and Spielberg and Star Wars and Close Encounters and all that nonsense that brought us the bombastic superhero film and things like we get nowadays that don't really say that much. Uh, so I don't know what you want to call it, but it's unrelated early 70s sci-fi. Uh, only here on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, good evening, and welcome to what, you know, we always kind of guess at where this is, and I'm not sure exactly where Season 10 started, because we had those couple of coronavirus updates, there was a lot of chaos involved there, but if we're going by, I think Burt Reynolds was supposed to be the first one in Season 10, so we got Burt, we had two Donald Pleasances, we had Tony Curtis, and we had Bob Mitchum, so this would be, in that order, this would be the sixth episode, but you know, if you include the coronavirus, then we're up to like, I don't know what, 10... (laughs) Anyway, of the <laughs> this tenth season of Weird Sea Inside of the Gold Mine, you're such a guy that all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. So drop in for a spell, and imagine you already did, and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, the maven of sleaze and the virago of vituperativeness, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, as I said, I'm Doc Savage, and with me is my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul. Hi, Lewis. Hello, everyone, and these films are weird and wonderful. This is a, a good choice, and we'll probably have a uh, a title for this show <laughs> uh, by the time the editing is done, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking of, of one as well, and, and it was kind of hard because they're they're disconnected and yet connected by by the themes you mentioned in the, you know your intro. Yeah, a lot of the themes are pretty much the same or bordering on the same. They're in the same you know electron field of, of possibilities, if you will. But then again, they have absolutely nothing to do with each other, except for some recurring people like Chuck Heston's and a couple of them. And 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 if you had a night where you watched these six or seven pictures, five or six, but whatever it is, if you had a night, you know, a day where you sat down or a weekend, all right, let's call it a weekend. If you had a weekend, you sat down and you watched all these back to back. We're not responsible. We're not going to pay the fucking bills. <laughs> Because a lot of these movies are downers. Oh, yeah. They're, they're heavy. They were heavy when they came out. And some of these films were commercial failures in terms of they didn't make money for the studio. And, and some didn't find, uh, I believe I'm correct here, some did not find followings. Until uh, many years later, yeah. Until many years later, yeah. And and some, like in the case of Fahrenheit 451, some were immediately recognized as and, and it still is. It's a great film as mm-hmm. art, but 
Yo. Others are still kind of considered trash, like Demolition Alley, and maybe even A Boy and His Dog. By some people. Yeah. Probably the weakest film, I'm going to say the weakest film, is one I want to discuss. Yes. This Damnation Alley. Yep. Because its source was so good, and you could see they tried, but something went wrong, but we'll get to that. It's probably the last film we're talking about. Too. And it's actually directly involved with Star Wars. <laughs> There's something that went wrong. <laughs> something that went wrong, yeah. yeah. So anyway, for those who don't know, despite being largely seen as a ghettoized specialization, science fiction used to be notable for its deep and thoughtful themes. Often well-respected authors like Isaac Asimov, J.G. Ballard, Harlan Ellison, and futurism, which could at times present ideas of the cutting edge of science that led to actual advances in technology, space exploration, and the way we look at things like ecosystems, social issues, and the world at large. More often, though, the aim was of warning. I mean, these were dystopias for the most part. The dystopias of Orwell, Burgess, Herbert, and Philip K. Dick, for example. Would anyone actually want to bring about a 1984 situation? A Clockwork Orange? A Blade Runner or a Dune? And sadly, these types exist and actively seek to advance technologies that are invasive of privacy, personal space, and the well-being of men in favor of some mass corporate totalitarian control in the hands of a privileged few, which is why we're in the pickle we are these days, to be honest with you. They were supposed to scare you off, though. This, these films were supposed to, and these books that they came from, the stories they came from, were supposed to wake you up. You know, you're not supposed to fight for the bad guys to win. There was actually something that I shared today, and it actually mentioned, it was talking about comic books as well, but it was talking about things like Star Wars or whatever the hell, and it was like, yeah, but, you know, the whole point of this was, this was the alliance fighting for humanity against, and how the hell could you support this? When did it become okay to stand up there and claim that you're fighting for, I don't know what, rights, freedom, when you're fighting for the dark side, when you're fighting for evil. When, when did that become cool? And this was this part of the point I'm trying to make here. These films were not like, yeah, let's do this, let's make this happen, go droogs. <laughs> you know, or, or for that matter, go you know, totalitarian control and brainwashing these people. You know, you're supposed to be, they're supposed to be a wake-up call, they're supposed to be throwing a bucket of cold water on your head in the middle of the winter. Like, whoa, what the hell is that? And, oh, okay, now I get it. Not everything was like this. Some were more mysterious. One day we're going to be talking the films of Stanley Kubrick, so something like 2001 is more hard to pin down. There's a lot of odd themes in there. But the films we're talking tonight, these were pretty damn blunt and pointed. So this was not supposed to be, let's make this happen. And yet, you'll see as we go on, that a lot of these things already have either started to come true or have come true, or we were very close to going there at one point before something turned us back around for a bit, brought us a reprieve. So it's a scary situation. These films do mirror reality. Anything you want to say before I go on? No, no, it's very good, very good. I concur. (laughs) So, (laughs) So while some of the shorter and less ambitious tales may have found themselves adapted to television anthology shows like, you know, science fiction theater, if anybody's seen that, or The Outer Limits, or even maybe a cheap 1950s B picture sci fi, science fiction seemed to become a genre of some note and critical attention. At the dawn of the 1970s, with the hard to comprehend narrative and midnight HUD film status of, as I had mentioned, 2001, which, again, we won't be talking about tonight as, you know, we're saving this for an upcoming show on Stanley Kubrick. I did want to speak also to the Apes films in greater depth and the feminist narrative of the Stepford Wives, but it looks like those also may be devoted to future shows based on some discussions we'd had. And while we're really sticking to many of the more important films of the late 60s through the mid-70s, it wasn't necessarily a hard stop when Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and E.T. forever changed the landscape of cinema to what we have now, which is a more juvenile and focused on film of spectacle. Even by my reckoning, there would be more films that lean harder SF than either horror comedy or Spielbergian bombast into the very early 80s, like Logan's Run, and the James Bond film Moonraker, believe it or not, Disney's Grim the Black Hole, 
films like Michael Crichton's Looker, the somewhat silent running like Saturn 3, even the original Alien, but those fall outside our time frame here. We also passed on Altered States because we'd spoken to it in some depth on a Ken Russell show, and having run a film club in my old job about that very film, it's hard to regather all the myriad thoughts and multi-layer possibilities of just how much that film touches on, astrologically, uh, metaphysically, scientifically. Those who have not seen it, it's an amazing film, and I can't recommend enough to the higher-minded, more receptive viewer, uh, the one who could view this with, if you will, your third eye, who won't just view it as some hippie nonsense about regression in Neanderthal times or what have you. But anyway... All that being settled, let's get into the handful of films we did take on, and as you may have already noted, we're going to dig a little bit deeper than usual, given some of the themes and intent of multi films. I mean, yeah, of course, we're still going to bring the yaks, but it may seem a bit more serious to show than usual, and that's kind of unavoidable. So to kick things off, we're going to be talking a pair of films based on well-known science fiction author Ray Bradbury. Now, having lived through the syndicated run of the Ray Bradbury Theater, I won't claim by any means to be a huge fan of the man, but he did have a few truly seminal works under his belt, two of which returned to famous sci-fi films and miniseries of the day, namely Fahrenheit 451, which we'll be speaking to shortly, and The Martian Chronicles, which we had discussed in passing in other shows, like I believe it came up in our Ryan McDowell show. Yeah, uh, it did, yeah. The latter is tricky to speak to anyway, since it's essentially an anthology with various characters finding their own paths and distinct story trails within the course of an attempt to colonize Mars. And the question of whether there are surviving natives killing everyone off, or if they're all just descending into their own personal hell of madness due to the loneliness they encounter in a strange new world. There were a lot of then-big names in that one, like Nicholas Hammond of Spider-Man fame, Darren McGavin of Colchick the Night Stalker, Barry Morse of Maria Schell of Space 1999, Rodney McDowell, who we mentioned that we dedicated an entire show to, Nairi Dawn Porter of The Protectors, Fritz Weaver, Black Exploitation regular Bernie Casey, even Rock Hudson and Bernadette Peters dropped by. And I know we had touched on that, at least during the McDowell show, if nowhere else. But around the same time as Fahrenheit 451, and this is slightly out of order here, but I wanted to touch on this one because it was a far less successful oddity that was produced on his work. And that's what we're going to be kicking off with, namely The Illustrated Man. So, essentially, Bradbury gathered together nearly 20 previously published short stories from various sources. He had published them in various magazines and anthologies and whatever else and called it a novel, using the conceit of a meeting with a grumpy old geek show carny tattooed man. Now, some of the stories had an actual point, like one where Mars had been colonized exclusively by black folks, and when a rocket arrives from Earth filled with whites, they institute a bunch of Jim Crow laws and such as revenge. And being a product of more optimistic days back in the 60s, uh, actually it might have been in the 50s, they realize what they're doing is no better than what had been done to them, and there's a more happy ending that you might have expected from that setup. There's also a dry run for Fahrenheit 451, where Mars is colonized with banned authors like Poe and Shakespeare. Yes, believe it or not, these people have been banned in the past. Mark Twain, you know. Only to host a mission from Earth, who by burning the last copies of their respective works killed them off as well. It's more hard SF and less developed than Fahrenheit 451 would be, but clearly he was thinking along those lines. Uh, and of course, none of the good stuff made it into the final film, which was more of a cross between Barbarella-style Margarita-esque imagery and a seriously boring, grim script, which is why the film kind of was and remains a head-scratcher, if not an outright failure, by critics and the audience standards alike. Rod Steiger, who was always known for being a depressingly dreary, grumpy old man in awful <laughs> films like The Pawnbroker and Dr. Zhivago, is a depressingly dreary, nastily angry old man as our tattooed lady of a titular character. Inventing politically correct newspeak decades before Hillary Clinton popularized it to the masses, he decides that nobody can call his tattoos what they are, but must refer to them as skin illustrations, on pain of getting a good thrashing, 
which our wimpy lead Robert Drevis nearly gets. He's also high on something potent, because he insists a handful of conjugal visits from the hauntings Claire Bloom is where he got his tattoos from, and that he may have lived in various futures, which we get to see. And also that if you stare hard enough at his tattoos, they come to life, which is the conceit where this guy stares at his tattoos and goes into another story. So you sit there for a good half an hour, trying not to nod off as Steiger overacts old man rage at all and sundry, you know, old man yelling at clouds, first as an overage parent to two annoying kids who really dig virtual reality of lions eating their prey, which eventually includes mom and pop, and of course they don't figure out there's a problem here. Then he chews on even more scenery as the angry, shouty old captain to a Star Trek-style landing crew who flip out over too much rain on a particular planet, and finally as a community of adults who all dream the world will end tomorrow, so they live out their typical work day, and then they kill their kids. But the next morning, oh, the world didn't end. Oh, no! As you can imagine, these last two stories are a lot shorter than the first one, or the long and boring framing story, which closes out on our zero, I mean hero, Drevis, flipping out himself, seeing the nasty old drunk killing him in the one space in his body that he doesn't have tattooed. So he bashes the guy over the head with a rock and staggers away, despite having only lightly wounded the guy who chases him, and then there's all the credits. Can you believe this piece of crap? Or that it was aired regularly throughout the 70s and portions of the 80s, as if it were a viable piece of cinema? I mean, what was the point of all this? Kids are evil? Parents are easily led by demagogues, even to the point of killing their own? I mean, weren't Shatner, Nemo, and Kelly great actors because Star Trek sure sucked without them? Or just <laughs> don't get fucking tattoos, kids, because someday you'll be like that old drunk running around with his shirt off, disgusting everyone like Rod Steiger in The Illustrated Man. I mean, I wanted to speak to this film because it certainly belongs in this general classification of late 60s, early 70s, Haiti sci-fi. But that's more on the surface in this case. It's one of the handful that actually fail at its goal of delivering a clear message to contemporary society. I mean, maybe it's because Bradbury had nothing to do with it in the end, even though he had originally written this anthology series. He had nothing to do with his film or his screenwriting or anything. Or that they just chose weird stories out of what was a much larger collection to focus in on. I mean, I know I never heard of this guy, Jack Smite, who did, oh, look, Airport 75. There's a laugh minute classic. I was, uh, was going to get to that. Uh, yeah. Kaleidoscope <laughs> with Warren Beatty and, oh, wait, Damnation Alley. The one you want to do. <laughs> so it looks like we'll be talking Jack Smite again later this evening, but honestly, who the hell is he? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's why I want to start off with it, because it really is one that didn't work. It was trying to do something, but what that something was <laughs> is anybody's guess. What's your take? Well, see, I was I was like nine when this came out, so I we didn't go see this. I remember them not taking me to see this because <laughs> I think also it was rated, and I'm right, it was rated M for mature audiences, and that was the they actually didn't come right. Away. Okay, quick history. G it was when right when they started with the ratings again, folks. There was G, general audiences, you know, cartoons and stuff, uh, Disney-type movies. And then there was GP, because they fucked up parental guidance. (laughs) It was supposed to be PG. They didn't fix that until, like, a decade or two later. Mm -hmm. So there's GP. There was no R right away. There was an M, and then there was X, and then there was unrated. And the X were usually self-imposed. So this film was rated M, which is the equivalent of an R. So I, I think they probably didn't take me, but by 1970, they were taking me to uh, R-rated films and smut. That's another story. <laughs> so <laughs> this is a very grim movie. I finally got to see this, 
as a, a start. I, well, one of the things was it just tanked. It tanked spectacularly yeah. in the movie theaters. And I, uh, Warner Brothers, it was the Warner Brothers Seven Arts, and tanked spectacularly. You know, in terms of box office making any money and didn't pick up a following. And you know, Ray Barrett Bradbury was the name to some, but he's not the name he is to people he is today. Right. If that makes any sense to you. You know, if you see a film come out based on a you know a Ray Bradbury story, no one's you know they just rediscovered or an old Ray Bradbury. Right away, that's bang. That's to them. That's like that's marketing. Back then, they couldn't market that. There was only a few people reading Heinlein, Bradbury. Uh, you know, the other authors are probably going to discuss tonight. And and so. And Heinlein was very popular with the counterculture. Bradbury was not. Right. Exactly. Heinlein was very popular with the counterculture. Bradbury was not. So th- this movie, when I first saw it, it was on. Uh, American television, I remember them airing it later in the evening. So after, I don't know, what, 10, 11 p.m., and it was grim as fuck because it was like it had this weird kind of almost anti-editing movement to it. It Mm -hmm. It moved along like it actually thudded along. It reminded me of THX 1138. That was that kind of slow. (laughs) Yeah, it was that kind of slow, but it was also, in a way, I guess on their part, the filmmaker's part, it was intentional. But it just made the grimness of the stories, amplified the grimness of the stories that that they were showing, the shorts. And, and, um, yeah, Rod Rod Steiger, who, who, when he wanted to be, could be a powerhouse of a freaking actor. I mean, the guy was an, a beast, but he also slumped a lot, and he also did this shouting thing. Yeah, you know, man stick. Yeah, well, look at Rod Steiger nowadays. Uh, sorry, <laughs> even then, Al Pacino. Oh, well, right? yeah. Al Pacino. Al Pacino got into this thing that uh, you know, Al Pacino's become Rod Steiger. What a fucking <laughs> idea! Oh my god. It's almost possible. But but Rod Steiger has done some tremendous work, you know. Uh, just, I mean, across the board, uh, he even played a serial killer. No way to treat a lady. And he know he knew when to tone it down on occasion. But they not in this film. <laughs> but not, no, you know, but, but he, 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 he's known for blowing out. But he doesn't blow it out as much in this movie. He's just omnipotently... Crap. And a little blustery. Uh, Come on, he made Shatner look subdued in that Star Trek thing in the middle. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's weird that the they decided to go with such a small cast. To mm-hmm. I, I, Jason Evers, I think it was in combat. Could be the same guy. Uh, the old Vic Morrow show. I, I, one of, of the three short, short films in this. No, two of them were short. The first one was really long. Yeah, yeah. The first one was kind of longish, but I kind of liked the astronaut one because it looked like what they were trying to do on a limited budget. Yeah, I liked that one the best, too. It actually yeah. reminded me a little bit of an Italian horror. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But again, it's just like, where did you end up with this? Nobody went to see it. They they had a tough time promoting it. The, the trailers, you would even find on YouTube today, the, the trailers of the film are just 
it's almost like they were mystified. What do we do with this? <laughs> you know, and, and, but this is a, in a way, I give them props for being such a strange science fiction film and, uh, released in 1969 for having the guts to do it, for doing it the way they did it. Jack Smite, who you mentioned, you know, he was like a lot of the, uh, a lot of the guys, uh, late 60s, early 70s, who did some really good movies. He's, he's one of these guys that did a lot of TV, directed a lot of TV, Naked City, Route 66, Alfred Hitchcock era, blah, 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 blah. You know, leading up to like your favorites, like McLeod, Colombo, Banachek. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but you know, of the handful of movies he did do, he occasionally would do Dark and Grim. So I'm looking at his, his, his credits here. We got Harper, it's Dark and Grim, Paul Newman, uh, crime picture. No Way to Treat a Lady. That was the Rod Steiger serial killer picture. Rabbit Run, which was a counterculture picture with uh, Jimmy Kahn or uh, somebody like that. Uh, yeah, Jimmy Kahn. Uh, Traveling Executioner, really weird Stacey Keach film. So he did, as a director, dabble in weirdness. And so this film kind of almost falls into the kind of stuff the guy was making before he did Airport 1975. <laughs> <laughs> the great Karen Black performance when she's in a, a cockpit with no air, all the windows are blown out, and instead of getting sucked out by explosive decompression or, you know, dying for not being able to breathe, she's there, like, talking her plane down, and it was unbelievable. I did a great review of it on Third Eye, if everyone wants to see it years ago. It's rather funny. Yeah, I, 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 well, apparently Airport 1975 was so beloved, they gave this guy... Money to make Midway and censor out. <laughs> and then Damnation Alley, before his entire career tanked with uh, a cocaine-addicted... Uh, what was that movie? Fast Break. It was a film known as Gabe Kaplan, Harold Sylvester, and Bernie King. But it was like one of the worst, worst things ever. And there, there's always been a lot of stories about that film. But anyway, so Jack Smite is like a guy who was like dabbling at the time period he was making this, dabbling in for an older, we're assuming he was an older gentleman at this point, dabbling in kind of counterculture themes with older actors. So he's like an old guy wearing puka beads and smoking a joint. <laughs> could be, could be, because you look you look at like the films I just mentioned, the actors that were in them are kind of older, you know, Paul Lowen and people like that, they're already then older, like uh, like uh, Rod Steiger. And so, uh, but maybe that was the way they were trying to breach that, you know, because if you remember, if you recall, and if you're too young to remember and to recall, I can barely remember and recall, but I do, <laughs> that, that it was a very serious black line that was drawn. Youth culture and everybody else, mm-hmm. you know, very true. And, and and so I think in a way, I'm not speaking for the filmmakers or anybody associated with this film, but I think in a way what they were trying to do, but it didn't work, what they were trying to do was let's cast some heavyweight actors, serious people, but let's make a movie that maybe the audiences will come to, you know, fans of those actors will come to see this movie, although it's really made to appeal to the youth crowd, right? Right. But it didn't appeal to the youth crowd. It was too fucking grim for the older folk. (laughs) 
And so it just became a weird play. I mean, people don't even talk about this film that much anymore. It's true. Yep. You people really don't talk about this film too much. And and actually, a couple of pictures we're going to discuss. People <laughs> really don't talk about them. Yep. So next up, even though it actually came three years prior, is a much better film, Fahrenheit 451. And sure, there's an issue of this being adapted from a Fulbright Bradbury novel and a much better one to boot, but you can also chalk this up to just having a better director on the slate. Uh, Day for Night's Francois Truffaut breaks up his lifelong bromance with Jean-Pierre Léo, delivering this very British, almost hammer-esque film with a still relevant warning against fascism, communism, and any form of totalitarianism, starting from and being cemented primarily by the loss of free speech, history, and literature in the arts. To quote one source directly, the government sends out firemen to destroy all literature to prevent revolution and thinking. Inspired by Hitler's book burnings and direct attacks on, quote, decadent art and, quote, Negro music, as much as Mao's cultural revolution ones and job swapping between doctors and farmers, scientists and ditch diggers, Bradbury posits a world much like our own today, where vapid bullshit is direct fed to the consumer in a very interactive way. Think the mirror or the Peloton, you know, cute but vapid redheaded wife Julie Christie actually has a two-way personalized exercise classes and cooking instruction through her TV. While the fire department is repurposed from putting out fires to gathering up books and any sort of permanent record and consign them to the flames, their fire trucks are actually mobile flamethrowers rather than fire hydrants. Inappropriately icy and very Teutonic Oscar Werner is our lead a fireman whose chance conversation with a neighbor school teacher, also Julie Christie, but this time with an unattractive Bob a la Mila Farrow, who's about to be canned for her radical views, leads him to question authority and actually read some of the books he spent so many years burning. This leads to a very nasty falling out with Julie Christie, the wife, and his running off with the neighbor to become one of, quote, the book people, who read and consign one book to memory so that nothing save death can take that piece of literature from the world. It's a flawed conceit, but interesting, and of course the government fudges up fake evidence that he was captured and killed to save face, which sounds rather Trumpian. The film has always been one of my favorites of its type, and it's a very fall film. It's very vibrant in its colors, yet very chilly at the same time. You can both sense the country and time of year it's filmed in, and feel the iciness of the restricted political social systems it warns of. Most of all, it's very moody and sparse for all its futurism, and very recognizably au courant no matter who's in power. It resonated just as strong under Reagan as it did under Hillary and under the real-world sense of Norwellian Newspeak, and it screams even louder these days in these Trumpian days of alternate facts and those who won't even accept the difference between truth and outright mirror-world lies. It's a perennial film that will never stop speaking to the free spirit and the free thinker, knowing that the course of conservatism is always back to serfdom in the dark ages, no matter what kind of rose petal trail they try to fool folks with along the way. We must remember our history. We must support the arts. We must have freedom of speech and action up to the point where those actions are impinging on someone else's and then we take away theirs, in which case, yeah, then it's no longer freedom of speech. Now we've got a problem. And if all we get in the end is some commune safely away from all the degenerate fascists and gracier communists where we wind up reciting all the great books that influenced the philosophies that directed society in its best days, honestly, is that really so bad? So I really, really love this film, and it's got a lot more to say to it than what I just hinted on here. So uh, why don't you uh, dig in? I'm glad you really, really love this film. At first, at first, I was not sure about my feelings about this movie because, like the Illustrated Man, it's icy, it's cold. Yes, it's very cold. And it's got these uh, lots of... Uh, Full, full uh, tone to the cinematography by Nicholas Rogue. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Nick Rogue did the, was the director the of the cinematography. Yeah. yeah, Man Fell to Earth. And gosh, so I, we did we did Nick Rogue on his show, didn't we? Well, yeah, you might be talking about Ken Russell and things like that. 
Yeah, and, and, and Kathleen Turner and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Nick Nick Rogue was definitely a character, and almost almost he's like the almost Ken Russell, but maybe even more demented. <laughs> and music, uh, actually, the score here was very interesting because it's a little calmer. Bernard Herrmann, psycho, yo. For you people who don't know, so yeah, so it, it took me a while to really grasp what's going on here, and then, then suddenly, I just love the conceit that what they were trying to say, mm-hmm. what Bradbury was trying to say, what the Truffaut was trying to say, and 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 what the filmmakers were trying to say was, this is how you preserve your culture, your memories, your past, and what it means for, to be human, what it means to be human. And in a way, once you get it, once you get it, it might, this is the kind of movie that takes a couple of viewings for people who, some people like to right away, bang, bang, bang. Yeah, you know, oh, it's about to you know. And some people like uh, the heavy drama, the uh, the uh, heavier drama of uh, not taking anything away from films like uh, the Merchant Ivory films, which, which you know, has its fans. It's okay. I'm not going to slam those. You know, you know, okay, I respect you like those things. Okay. They were heavy drama. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole bunch of things like that because they were so success- successful for a time period. There were, like, films like that for, for years. We were stuck with that. Mm-hmm. And But the thing was, I think people forgot that you can do heavy drama, but long as you have all the elements. And you know, you mentioned something about Oscar Berner, and and he works here so perfectly mm-hmm. because because oh, he's cold. Just, <laughs> he's cold, right? He's cold, but I think that's why Truffaut cast him. Mm-hmm. He cast him. Julie Christie can be cold. Yes, she's never been a hottie, and so he cast her. Fucking Anton Diffring is in this structure. Come on. So you, it's a cold cast. Yeah. Yep. Cyril Cusack, you know, uh, well, at this time period, a more a well-respected theater actor. Think of this as a warm 1984, and you'll get the picture a lot better. Yeah, th- exactly. Uh, really, a really, once you get it, it's a film that, that really should be in your collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, seriously. It's this very, be, very good. This should be in your own private DVD, Blu-ray collection. Uh, it should just be in your heart because the philosophy, what he's saying here, is a very important message that, as I mentioned, it's perennial. It doesn't matter who's in power. We keep forgetting this and we keep winding up in the same sewer. You know, we keep wallowing around in the same situations because people just aren't on top of this. You know, who was it? Was that Benjamin Franklin that said the price of uh, liberty is eternal vigilance? I mean, we don't have eternal vigilance on this. And this is, it shouldn't be hard. It shouldn't be hard to say, you know what? Our arts is the expression, ostensibly, the highest expression of humanity is man striving towards God, the gods, the higher forces, our better selves, our future, whatever you want to call it, our potential, you know, striving towards human potential. And to just piss all over that and piss all over our history where you, from which you don't learn anything and continue to make the same mistakes, uh, to piss all over facts and you know, a shared truth is just, you can't go anywhere with that. All you're going to do is destroy everything. We're going to wind up, you know, just shooting each other in one big pit and everybody, like, massive world war over nothing. 
you've got to you've got to retain what it means to be a shared yet individualistic society. In other words, you have the right to be you and do you any way you want to, and so does the guy next to you and the one next to them. It, where it all comes and gets difficult is when we start stepping on each other's toes. So therefore, there's got to be a shared consensus. Okay, this is what we do, this is what we don't do, just so we don't fuck with each other. But otherwise, and and that's what this is about. It's, it's about. You've got to keep striving for something higher. You don't want to be going for the lowest common denominator. You don't want to be going with reality TV and see how much shit you can get away with and how dumb you could be and still be successful and how rotten you can be to other people and still get away with it. We're doing that. We're living that out. That's Trump's world. That's a disaster. That's a recipe for the collapse of a civilization, not the sustenance or building of one. We're trying to strive for something more, and to do that, you need something. I mean, even... What's, what's the book that he winds up taking at the end? Edgar Allan Poe's Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Mm, it's yeah. ostensibly, Poe was looked down upon in his lifetime as a, a drunk, a hack writer of like little horror tales. And to this day, you could say, well, what's Poe really saying other than just about you know guilt and nerves? And he, he's kind of, I actually did him in a, a book club with Nathaniel Hawthorne because it's the same themes of guilt. Nonetheless, he still takes something that you would think would be, yeah, you know, not on the higher order of art and takes that to heart. This is the book that resonates with him, and this is where he wants to carry forward to the world. When everything else goes away, what are you going to have to offer? And, well, okay, at least I can retain this and share this with the world. This is who I am. I think that's really just... It's very important to catch these kind of things. It's very important to sustain the important things about being human. And not just individual, okay, yeah, we share our stories, that's great, but it's not just about me, 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 and my life, and my parents, and my whatever. It's more about, well, how does this resonate with others, and their stories, and wow, holy shit, a lot of these people have things that are very much in common, and yet we differ on this and that and the other thing, and not just that, you know, I'm this race, or I come from this country, or I'm this gender, or, you know, I swing this way, or whatever the hell else. It goes well beyond that. It goes beyond, this is what it means to be human. And if you start erasing all that and burning it away and destroying it under the feet of some stupid totalitarian whatever, even if it's supposedly bringing you a, a leisurely lifestyle, like you know this whole Peloton type thing that she was living out, uh, Julie Christie's The Wife. Oh, look, I'm part of this cooking show and they teach me whatever the hell, but I'm stuck by the strictures of its very hidebound rules and I cannot think outside that because otherwise I am, you know, a traitor to the party, if you will. I'm a rhino, I'm a dino, I'm a whatever. Whoa, whoa, well, whoa. That's, that's, the, that's the whole thing which more blatant in this film than in others of, of the uh, separation between utopia and dystopia. Yes. Utopia is... All those who have extreme comfort and, and are feeling in their zone. Don't recognize there's a problem. Don't recognize their pro that there's a problem are totally against the dystopian fraction, mm -hmm. which is, is, well, it's thought of as fictional, but it's so true nowadays. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a community. It's a society. They're undesirables. They're frightening people to those in their utopia what's utopia today the christian right yes the the donald trump group who who is so ambitiously trying to hold on to something that they never had yeah and they're losing it day by day but to them everyone else is a, a it's almost like the matrix you know something we never discussed but there's a dystopia there's another group out there and 
they're undesirable to them. Yeah, progressivism and, runs on futurism and hope at, at right. core. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean the party. We're talking about progressivism per se. Whereas conservatism runs on fear and fear of the other. And the locus, the magnetic draw of it, no matter what you say, you think, oh, it's going back to some idyllic rose-colored window in my past as a child. It was so much better. And it really wasn't, but you just didn't know that because you were younger then or you were healthier then or whatever else. But it, that's not really where it's pulling you. It always The pull is back to the fucking dark ages. It's always back to serfdom and slavery and war and totalitarianism and a small group of people that have absolute power over the rest of us. That is not where any of us want to go. And the fact that this movement is so loud and so politically powerful at the same time that every survey ever taken out there shows that the party itself and those who swing that way are diminishing. I think it's something, last call I heard in one of some of the surveys was that they hold less than 25% of voters leaning that way. But yet where, what are they doing? They're basically destroying the country even now that they're out of office just because they're set up in gerrymandered states, in judiciary, in wherever the hell, you know, this asshole running the post office. These people are still there, and we can't just get them out in one fell swoop. Which, which, as you know, I posted about that on Facebook. And, you because know, I have a lot of people like, it's going up. It's taking longer to get on meal as of October 1st. This is happening. That's happening. And I put up a little reminder the guy contributed a lot of money to Trump while he was president, before he was president, during his presidency, mm-hmm. and to all these other gerrymandering groups, actually, because mm-hmm. you, know, you just mentioned it. And Trump said, you're ahead of the post office. Yeah. The fucking guy didn't know anything about the post doesn't know anything about the post office. People knew that. Yeah. Remember, they were trying to remove the... Uh, and they did. They were successful in move, removing a great deal of the post office boxes you found on street corners. Yep. Um, and now they're reducing hours of physical offices, post mm-hmm. offices. They're reducing hours of deliveries. And I heard they're going to make prices go up to anywhere between 30 cents and five bucks for shippings. Yes, this is true. And so, and not, here's my thing, though. I didn't want to go out and say it because there's a lot of people like, oh, really? <laughs> no, they, they forgot. They forgot that happened. How right? do you forget so quickly? <laughs> this is this is this is the world we live in. This yeah. is America we live in. This is the world we live in, man. Yeah, that's true. This is the world we live in. And and but what was my point? My point was my point was but don't you see? Yeah. If you if you do nothing about it then this bites you in the ass. And then my other thing was I don't care what the fucking rules are. Look how bad this is going to get. Why can't the president of the United States come and say, get the fuck out? Yeah, that's true. Well, the problem I is mean, that if it goes one way, then it goes for the next one. So when it flips back again, then they can just undo it, and it's going to become a tit-for-tat kind of a thing. This is true, but, but you mean, uh, Trump appointed people for life. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. That's the problem. He's a king-making fuck. No, it wasn't even just him. It was McConnell because remember he pulled that shit to Obama. Oh, it should be the incoming president does it, and then he goes to the other side. And oh, it should be the president's in, the, the standing president does it. Like wait, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can't have it both ways. Nobody forgot this. What are you stupid? But uh, sure our, 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 the last thing I want to say about Fahrenheit 451, which might annoy you. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're no big fan of Spielberg. Yeah. I, we're not going to discuss Steve Spielberg right now. We're going to do a whole show on him one day. <laughs> no. But all due respect and props, he really was a big fan of, of Truffaut. 
Mm-hmm. And when he did Close Encounters, he not only – Oh, he cast him in it, yes. He cast him in it in a major part, in a speaking part, mm-hmm. and, and and it's funny. You may not like that film, but one day you might watch it and see something you may not have noticed. There's a lot of the stuff we're talking about tonight that happened in that movie. It's not the, all the rah-rah, hello, aliens things you think <laughs> it is. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. But I, I'm glad that Spielberg, 20 years later, 15, whatever it was, you know, and that, because actually it reminded everyone, like, wow, look at that. That's a big thing. And that I will say I have come around to really enjoying Jaws. It is a very good film. So I'll give the guy to release that. Thank you. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next. All right. <laughs> From the softer, more intellectual climes of European art house, we're going to head back to more familiarly blunt shores for a strangely timely echo horror science fiction starring Charlton Heston, of all people. Long known as a right-wing bastion and gun rights activist, old Chuck nonetheless had enough of the progressive spirit in him to take the lead role in The Omega Man, whose Woodstock-obsessed hero we'll get to shortly, as well as starring in the first and inarguably best of the Planet of the Apes films. And, you know, we have briefly chatted about those in our Roddy McDowell show, but I'd since revisited the entire original series and the TV show that briefly resulted in the late 70s. So I'd like to talk these one of these days as a topic of their own. And you had mentioned the new films as well, so I'll try to suffer my way through those and <laughs> we can do a show on the whole deal. Uh, please do, but because they're not as bad as you think, in my opinion. Okay. Anyway, this was Chuck's other major contribution to sci-fi, and my long-standing teenage obsession with the Omega Man aside probably is his most meaningful to our modern times, far more so than the era in which it was made, namely Soylent Green. And yes, there is actually something out there right now on the market called Soylent. You can actually buy this, and I don't want to know what it is. Uh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so anyway, and that's true, people. You can look it up. Uh, Heston's a crusty New York City cop, partnering unofficially with the far older Edward G. Robinson in the way that Banachek used to visit his wealthy friend, the guy with the private library for information on cases and such. Robinson's practically Ed Bagley Jr., with even hanging light bulbs powered by a stationary bike he subsequently jumps on when it grows dim. He's always going on about the days when we had real food before all our scientific geniuses, quote-unquote, made the air foul, the water unfit to drink, and the soil corrupted. Heston's happy to just eat the new mystery product being marketed a la yogurt or veggie burgers, some bizarre manufactured concoction of unknown provenance called Silent Green, which the poor line up in droves to get rations of, and when they run out, there's huge riots, which are broken up by literal dump trucks that scoop people up in droves, toss them in the hopper, and then presumably they're going to go off to meet their gruesome final fate, though it's not explicitly stated. It could just be more of a dehumanizing version of the police truck. We don't really know what's going on yet. So, like most New Yorkers, Ed is stuck in a dingy, tiny squad of an apartment, while the rich, quote, elites have spacious mansion-style suites, well-lit with access to real beef and a stable of living horrors who they call furniture, just to dehumanize me further. One rather fey rich owner comes around and punches and beats on a bunch of them, just for getting together to lounge out and smoke pot, rather than stay in their own apartments on call, but Chuck puts them in his place. This leads one of these girls, a sort of cute redhead named Lee Taylor Young, who appears to spend her career doing melodramas, to become his main squeeze and give Chuck a taste of the high life as he investigates the murder, which is actually a really an assisted suicide, of Soylent Green corporate head Joseph Cotton, yes, Baron Blood himself. Meantime, government, or is it corporate types, are putting pressure on the department to keep this quiet, having tourist traps Chuck Connors tail Heston wherever he goes, and even giving him carte blanche to take the man out when he won't close the case. It's like Outland, crossed with, say, the taking of Pelham 123. This crosses the echo sci-fi I can see with not so much the cowboy picture, but the gritty maverick policier of the era. It's like a Kojak who can't trust his own department set in the future, or more to the point, looking forward to 2021. 
After a trip to some high muckety-muck book exchange run by fellow old folks, Edward G. Robinson discovers the dark secret and can't take what he discovers any more than Cotton could in being responsible for it. He leaves the building and sets up an appointment to submit to a Kevorkian-style assisted suicide, where he'll wind up as part of the next batch of Soil and Green. Damn, the early 70s were grim. I mean, think about Paul Nash's People Who Own the Dark or Living Dead in Manchester Morgue. This sadly ultra-realistic view of corporations misuse technology at the expense of the people that they're ostensibly there to serve was front and center in the collective zeitgeist. At least it was enough for a concern to dominate the nightmares and dark cinema of the time. So what always boggles my mind is, who saw these horrific dystopias? And rather than saying, man, we got to do something to turn things around, said, yeah, let's make sure that happens. We can make an extra buck or two out of this. The line that really sums it up? Yeah, yeah, I know. When you were young, people were better. Nah, People were always rotten. The world was beautiful, though. Oh, this is a really weird movie because it's, uh, I think it's MGM. So it's got that veneer of a go-happy sci-fi film for the family. And then it's exceedingly grim. Mm -hmm. And as it goes on, it gets more grim. Mm -hmm. And, and I will say... (laughs) This is one of these major release films, irregardless of being a science fiction film, where it, it not only ends, and, and Chuck goes two for two <laughs> right now with this, not only ends with the lead character going for a, a predestined fate of badness, mm-hmm. it's fucking grim. You, you walk out of the table, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah. Really? I mean, I mean, Seriously, it's like, are you kidding me? Yep. And uh, the whole idea, they did a very good job. Well, this guy was no hack. The director was Richard Fleischer, mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, again, star, you know, did some TV work, and uh, but he did some heavy, heavy lifting. He actually directed 20,000 20, Leagues Under the Sea, James Mason. Um, your favorite, the Vikings, Kirk Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know you You have Fantastic Voyage. Mm-hmm. Um, the Boston Strangler. So that was a good one. Jay. So it's a 10 really dim place. You know, good serial killer film. Uh, the Don is Dead, Mr. Majestic. You know, Mr. Majestic, a pretty good Bronson picture. Yeah. And so... Amityville 3D, the Destroyer, Red Sonja. Wow, he went out on bad notes. <laughs> He went out on bad notes, yes. The jazz singer. The jazz singer. I, I, I know, I know. Mandingo. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, but I said, Rich, Rich, what? what what's this about? Said, Rich, we're going to get all our money. We're going to get the most famous black actors, and you're going to direct them, and, and some boxes, too. Some boxes. You know, that's probably how the Hollywood guys spoke back then in the 70s. We're going to get you some boxes. You're going to direct boxes. Oh my god, man, Dingo, I can't believe I fucking sat through that thing. <laughs> oh, there's another one, too, wasn't there? Trump? Yeah. yeah. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> With Yafikado instead of uh, Ken Norton. Uh, and, like, and Pam Greer. <laughs> it was like big dick black slaves going yep. against their white oppressors yep. and. Burning down the plantation or whatever. Burning the plantation and screwing the white girls. Yep. <laughs> I was like. <laughs> I actually like Quadroon better. <laughs> You've seen that well, one. Yeah, yeah, I saw that one. Yeah, well, they did it. They did it in a nice veneer for Roots. You know, they kind of cleaned it up. Oh, they rock, cleaned it up for Roots, yeah. 
But fucking Mandingo and Trump, wow. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but at this time, Richard Fleischer was doing interesting stuff. <laughs> oh, he's doing interesting stuff, right? It's just. Uh... Going all the way back to where I started this weird digression, which I <laughs> tend to do sometimes. Um, I saw the green, really great film. Ends on a weird note, and I, you like his career. Also, Edward G. Robinson was terrific in this. I think it was his last film. Yeah, what is probably his most sympathetic role? Oh, it was. He died twelve days after uh, film uh, filming completed. Wow. He died of cancer. And you'd never know it. He uh, last acted with Heston in the Ten Commandments in 56 and uh, did make up for Zayas for Planet of the Apes, although I don't know whatever happened with that. Yeah. So that's a little tidbit for your Planet of the Apes idea. So you'll notice there's a lot of common threads in these films, like the reprogramming they do to the Droogs in A Clockwork Orange or the kids' virtual reality projection of the African Velt and the Illustrated Man. The suicide assist reel connects Soylent Green to the others with the same sort of widescreen cinema as Catharsis, Change Agent, or Suicide Aid. And this can be stretched to other sci-fi films of the era as well. Was this a function of a new self-reflexive approach to cinema that rose from the Cahiers de Cinema crowd, where film critics suddenly flipped and became filmmakers, which also happened in Italy with people like Dario Argento for one? Or was it some offbeat take on Marshall McLuhan with the medium itself being the message? Between Apes and Soylent Green, Chuck dropped a film that was quite defining for me in my younger days. I always expected, like many of my generation, that that lunatic Reagan was going to push the damn button. Like he kept threatening to remember how you had that guy yeah. walking behind him with the button all the time and kill us all. I mean, why do you think they spent so much attention on the guy that was falling around over their briefcase back when? And why there was so much dystopian post-apocalyptic sci-fi in theaters and even a lot of the aesthetic during the 80s, you know, like in punk or goth or whatever else. So, yeah, I always planned on being the Omega Man, living in some fortified apartment, gathering weapons and gas, and sitting around rewatching Woodstock day after day, pining in for days when we thought we could change the world for the better, taking out the backwards inheritors of a cursed earth by night. Uh, sadly, only half of this seems to be coming true, and it's the last part. I'm not free to pull out the weapons and take them out yet, and that leaves me so frustrated. <laughs> like, here comes Maga, broom. <laughs> Another stylish-looking film. Here, Chuck drives around in a red convertible caddy through completely empty, paper-strewn city streets, running red lights and gunning down shadows that flip through apartment windows through the opening credits. He gets a flat, so he just grabs his gas can, walks over to a car showroom, and drives away with a new car. He drops by the local movie theater, screens himself a print of Woodstock, which he knows every word to, and finds he may be going mad in all the solitude, with the cacophony of phones ringing that can't possibly be happening. And just like that, the sun sets and the fun begins. Run by a Manson-style pair of cultists, the not-so-subtly named Family is a huge group of albino zombie types rather than the vampires of the Vincent Price last man on Earth, with some overtones of black militancy. Not, the lead guy's not black, but he does have a second assistant that is, and this is running through a lot of the picture. When Chuck is rescued from the zombies by ostensibly normal survivor Rosalind Cash, we get what may have been one of the first interracial relationships on film, and he discovers a small group of such survivors, all teens and kids. After a nice escape sequence via a motorcycle through a huge sports arena, he gets involved with that group trying to cure Cash's little brother who's already half zombie, and it works. But the kid's stupid enough to believe that the zombies want to be cured or could ever trust Chuck's intentions, so he winds up dead and the zombies destroy Chuck's place and effectively crucify him to a fountain sculpture across the street where he dies in a literal pool of his own blood. Taking a sample to isolate whatever antibodies he bears, the kids head off to New Horizons, leaving Chuck one of those inevitable Christ figures our high school English teacher always had a stretched out to find in every damn novel. Story we ever read. Whew. 
a lot more exciting and action-packed than it sounds. This one's an early zombie film full of siege mentality, but with the conceit that daylight brings a full-stop ceasefire to regain your bearings and prepare for the next round. In a way, it brings Vietnam to mind with all the lines of demarcation where you can fight here but not six feet over there and all that. There were certainly much bloodier and crazier films of this general type to come, but few with any serious sociopolitical message outside Romero, and none with the same sort of high-minded gravitas. I hear your cat. Yeah. Uh, it's another downer film, but this is our show of downer sci-fi anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that, that Heston would allow himself to uh, star, appear in and star in two pictures pretty much back-to-back where he not only ties in a spectacular fashion, but in, in such a way that uh, this is probably another film where audiences walked out thinking, you know, because they built this, the last man alive is not alone, you know, and the trailers are pretty effective. Mm-hmm. It This was a full-on horror film, more so than Planet of the Apes, which was a sci-fi adventure. Mm-hmm. This was definitely more built and edited as more of a horror film than than, than uh, Planet of the Apes, mm-hmm. or even Silent Green, definitely Silent Green was political, quasi-sci-fi. But uh, this was full-on bat, <laughs> bat shit crazy. <laughs> and, and you know what? So it's funny. There, there are, it's funny. For, for all the years since Richard Matheson wrote this novella, it's actually a novella. It's not that long. There's only three versions of this. Mm-hmm. This is the second. The first was uh, Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price, right. and that was filmed in 64, 65 in Italy. And a Will Smith version uh, with the original title from the book, I Am Legend, from 2007, which wasn't bad either. Mm-hmm. It's got problems. All these pictures have problems. It's, it's weird because the movie also, but probably in the best of traditions, doesn't answer a lot of questions. Yes. We know there was a, a, a Russian-Chinese escalation of biological warfare. We know that. We know Heston was a army scientist, much like the other characters in the, in the remake and in the, the earlier version. And we know there was a plague. But the, they leave everything very vague. And yes, that, that, you know, Manson and the family and this whole weird, don't trust them, they'll kill you. Yeah, hell. The whole uh, uh, fear of youth. You know, remember, there was a fear of the youth culture after the whole Manson thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not making this up. I'm sure this happened. I'm sure. It, why do you think the guys out in the Midwest started getting these fucking cars with their shotguns and blowing away hitchhiking teens? Mm-hmm. Not because they had long hair, because they were afraid. Yep. You know, I think Manson for probably some uh, scores of deaths, probably more than we can count, and probably for more than than we even know about. You know, out in the South, maybe even New England. I mean, so a lot of that actually is in this kind of movie. You know, the fear of that. Because mm-hmm. remember, Heston's character is also a mature man. He's an older white gentleman, and he's trying to save these people. But then these other people who are mixed. They're mixed race, they're mixed ages, but they're still the others. Yeah, know? and don't forget, like I said, there's a lot of black notes involved in this, too, on both yes. sides there. And therefore, yeah. there's that playing into it as well, because at the time, you had the Panthers going around, you had the Weathermen. It was very up, you know, that was when they had the, the Watts riots and the Newark riots, and the yeah, every place was some friggin' disaster going on. People not just seeking social justice, but going beyond, just burning things down. 
and you never knew what was going to happen. It never really turned in this country like it did, say, in Italy or France, where you got just, you know, anarchists going and blowing up banks and killing people at random. But, it, you know, it did get kind of dicey. So people were scared, and there's definitely that atmosphere. I know my folks were like, you know, <laughs> do we even have a kid? We don't sure we want to bring somebody up in this kind of world. There was a very fatalistic feeling in the air, and it, everybody says it came after Altamont, but that was just a general rule of thumb. In that time period, it was just like everybody was, oh, my God, is this the end of the world? Little did they know we'd be up in 2021 and be 20 times worse. But <laughs> there you go. Which leads us to the Echo-themed apocalypse film. Yes, well, a year later, a more subtle look at ecology and Descent into Madness appeared, with crazy Bruce Dern as a botanist in silent running. Global warming has gotten us to the point where we can't grow plant life on Earth anymore, so they take them with plants they could grow in a lab and send them out into space, of all places around the rings of Saturn, hoping that they'll thrive and reproduce out in deep space and eventually be able to replant this on Earth somehow. Of course, being way out in space with a three-man crew isn't exactly a social butterfly sort of thing, so folks get a little wacky. When the corporation funding all of this decides to scrap the project and return the ship to commercial endeavors, Dern flips out and winds up killing off two of his companions, sailing off into deep space alone with two service robots. But there's a problem. His plants are dying from lack of sunlight. And there's one of the company's ships in the area waiting to check in on them. Can he save the day, or is this the end of the road? It's a strange, quiet film. It's one of those films that shows us just how interconnected we all are. Because even though Dern is an obsessive about his mission and is off in his own world compared to the more cynical, jock-like astronauts that he shares the ship with, who mock him for his quirks and his tunnel vision. And he's also kind of a hippie, too. He's walking around dressed like almost like a priest. And they just kind of like, ah, look at this idiot. But nonetheless, when he flips to stop the corporation from crushing all his dreams and the mission and the values that he stands for ecologically and kills off his compatriots, all he has to socialize with him is a pair of service robots, one of which he been trying to replicate them, I guess, because uh, he does the same things to drive around madly around the corridors and he used to yell at them. So he decides to do it now because he's lonely and crazy. So I guess he takes on their role and he runs into one of the service robots and can't properly repair it. So in the end, he finds the only answer is to send the one functioning robot off in the deep space, caring for the last Edenic garden, if you will, until its power that running the ship wind down as Joan Baez songs, which were on the soundtrack the whole time, warble away. They're clearly tapping to the whole Joni Mitchell, Woodstock, Big Yellow Taxi ethos here about how we're the ones responsible for destroying our own paradise, but offers no hippie utopian answers in exchange for enlightenment, just more questions and in the end failure. It's very obviously a post-Altamont film and a real downer for all its contemplative and pensive feel, uh, and as you mentioned, it is very ecologically uh, minded, but it, no, there's no answers here. Yeah, there are no answers. But I give them, who is this? Universal of all people. I give them props for making this film. Uh, Douglas Trumbull, in what would be, his, I believe, his first directorial movie, uh, he did the special effects for 2001. It, you know, it's, and they look spectacular, even today. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, it's like they really should have made a couple passes at this. Uh, he also directed Brainstorm, if you remember that one. Yeah, the Nelly, which is a very strange movie, actually. It is. It's, it's not a film you could take at uh, face value, which she had a lot of trouble because she died during it. And then her co-star in the film was involved in her death. And so they had to finish the film, and it just took forever. Oh, he also did the special effects on Star Trek The Motion Picture, the original one. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And, and so the script, which is Derek Washburn, boy, uh, is it credited to these three people? Derek Washburn, who I, I remember the name, I can't think where. Michael Cimino. Oh, wow. And Stephen Bochco. Yes. 
TV guys from the 80s. TV guys from the 80s, but Michael Cimino from, you know, The Deer Hunter. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, wow, you know, it's like we're talking heavy hitters here. Beside the Joan Baez tracks on the uh, soundtrack, PDQ Bach creator <laughs> Peter Shickley. Yes. Also contribute to the to the to the soundtrack. Um, Strange character in himself. He was supposed to be like his shtick was that he was the lost son of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, and where he had a whole bunch of kids like Johann Christoph Bach, and they were yeah. all kind of lesser musicians. So this was supposed to be the least of all the musicians, and he would do things where he would score things with really inappropriate instruments, like almost like a Zappa esque thing, like oh here score for washboard and uh, bicycle spokes or whatever the hell. But he was nonetheless a serious musician and a, um, a musical ethnographer, if you will. He would dig up things that were long lost, like medieval music, and re- restore them. So very strange character that kind of played on comedy oh, and the art. Oh, I totally, I totally agree with you. I, I think a lot of people thought he was a joke, but he was he was an ethno, uh, musicologist. Just a and tiny thing. He knew what he was doing. and um, Tiny Tim was the same thing, believe it or not. Yeah, Tiny Tim, another character, but he knew what he was doing. So, Silent Running, which has a fabulous early 70s movie poster, and a prototype, uh, Bruce Stern. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bruce Stern was at the height of his Bruce Sternness at, at this, <laughs> this 1972, so thereabouts, yeah. And, but yeah, it's just, it's just, it's, it looks great. Uh, they they made it look so much more than what they spent on it, and some props to Doug Trumbull and all those effects guys. But they really didn't think out the ending of the film because it truly just ended up being disingenuous after two hours. Like, oh, yeah, really? That's it. It's, that's it's like, <laughs> so he's he's our our lead is mad. He knows he's going mad, but the only way to save. As far as, and he knows that's running out, and it's going to run down, and the robot will eventually run down, and the power will eventually run down the ship. So it's a very strange film, something that will never be made today for sure. Oh, no, hell no. So I have to admit, when it comes to pure sci-fi as opposed to science fiction fantasy like Robert E. Howard or Piers Anthony, or sci-fi horror like Sex Romer, Tanith Lee, and Alan D. Foster, who's into the out of and the vanishing point, were teenage favorites, my favorite author has always been Harlan Ellison. And that's a hard one to admit because, boy, did he like to piss people off. You doubtless know <laughs> Ellison, even if you aren't a big reader, because he's worked in Marvel Comics during Roy Thomas's editorship on issues of the Avengers and the Hulk, in television for Star Trek where he did City on the Edge of Forever, as well as being infamous for his rather vocal criticism of other writers' work in both television and paperback to the point where he used to go around calling himself a cantankerous son of a bitch. Personally, I always found him funny, no more mean-spirited variant of my criticism idol, former Movieland critic Jill Queenan, who wrote two books you must read, Confessions of a Cineplex Heckler and Red Lobster, White Trash, and the Blue Lagoon, which are just as incisive yet funny as what you get here and on Third Eye. But my love of the guy didn't come from any of those other sources. It was in stumbling across a paperback collection of his short stories at my grandmother's house. She had kept a little library my mother had in her youth, and among all this, like Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, and Cherry Ames student nurse stuff, were a few interesting things like those Hitchcock paperback anthologies, J.G. Ballard, and Ellison. And holy shit, the repent harlequins to the TikTok man ever resonate. I mean, talk about an important life lesson. You could well read it as the Joker's hero, but without the insanity and malice that it suggests. It's really about the primacy and importance of the individual over imposed societal nonsense and living by and for the clock or any rules per se. The guy breaks all the rules and he's a happy force of anarchy in a gray world of fascist or communist regimentation, and they just can't figure him out. There's a horrible false ending where he gets indoctrinated by the powers that be, Clockwork Orange or 1984 style. 
But the story ends with a big hint that, eh, the indoctrination didn't stick and he'll be back in fighting form in no time. It's really an excellent story and probably one that people need to hear now more than ever, with everybody leaning really far right or rather far left and nothing in between. Nope, not going to follow the lemmings. I'll make my own damn way. And if you lay down an order, expect me to do the opposite and flip you the bird for your troubles. Hell, you may get a pie in the face to boot. Let's keep things fun. So one of the longer stories he's known for was turned into a film that, by all accounts, wasn't entirely successful, A Boy and His Dog. Probably most notable these days for starring a young Don Johnson long before Miami Vice, the hilarious Dead Bang, and several marriages to dim bulb Melanie Griffith. This is almost a proto-Mad Max scenario of post-apocalyptic desert tomfoolishness involving, well, a psychic dog whose main purpose seems to be mocking his far stupider human charge. Best, he's a sheepdog, which is probably a play on the 70s popularity of the Benji films, or at least predicted them. A lot of cheap fighting and scrounging among filthy desert dwellers. Hmm, is this an Australian picture? An episode of Firefly? Well, in any case, it's adapted and directed by L.Q. Jones of The Witchmaker, Stay Away Joe, which we talked about in our Elvis show, and Brotherhood of Satan fame. And, of course, we also did a show on Firefly and Serenity, for those interested. Don is the animal of the pair, totally existing for sex between shootouts with other gangs of marauders, white slavers and scam artists, over that and food, which mainly seems to be for the dog. The only recreation they take is trading scavenged goods for a seat in an outdoor screening of old something-weird-style Black Sox porn flicks. And their codependency stems from the dog sniffing out pussy for Don, while Don hunts for food for the dog. Apparently, whatever weird experiments made the dog psychic had bred out his natural skills. So the dog's main goal is to find a way to the legendary land of Over the Hill, where people actually farm the land and live off that, rather than having to struggle against others for sloppy seconds. Meantime, one of the girls they score for Don turns out to be a scam artist herself, sent above ground as bait to bring healthy young men down to a freakish middle America of the 40s and 50s, where they all wear circus clown makeup and impregnate the women, who line up one after the other for Mooney-style mass weddings with strapped-down donors at the doctor's office via artificial insemination. If you think this film was an influence on Steve Gerber, you're probably right. Those are your Defenders fans. This plan is to grab scrappers like Don from above, use him to make a number of women gravid, then kill him off just to keep the weird little society running. Meantime, the dog remains on the surface, bleeding out after the last scrap with fellow scavengers. In the end, it turns out the girl wants to use Don for a power grab to take over the weird underground world, and demands he let the dog die and face up to who and what he really wants out of life. And then there's a surprise happy ending where he makes the only correct choice, and we go back to the start of the film, as it were. Even more so than the environmental and moral ambiguity of silent running, A Boy and His Dog is a bizarre science fiction tale that's it's kind of hard to peg a message to. What are we really to take away from this? The moribund stagnation of a perversely conservative middle America? Well, certainly. But is the other scenario with the aimless violence and treachery of the surface desert world really any better an option? It's like something like the MASH movie, you know, MASH the movie. At the time, people saw these guys as some sort of countercultural heroes as discussed in our Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland shows. But what I saw when I watched that was some rather crass, certainly overly sexist, and this is coming from me, not some woke type, and juvenile <laughs> behavior that was, so you know I'm saying something, that was neither funny or something to celebrate. It was just kind of childish and sickening on all sides at the end. And this film is much the same, just with a lot less of an active plot. Fight, scavenge to see a movie, fight to screw the girl, fight to escape his or her people's nasty plot, choose the lesser of the two evils, and roll credits. Give me dead bang any day. Those Midwestern militia Nazis are a rather awkward enemy who it's hard to tire of seeing getting taken down. This one's just kind of cynical post-hippie bullshit. It's interesting. It's definitely watchable. And you can tell some of that dark humor is Ellison for sure. But it's so, I don't know if it works as a film. Well, I, I, this was uh, back around, uh, this is 1975. So around the time this film came out, it was the, the darling of the uh, Cinefantastique, the magazine set. It was everybody who who was so into 
the Illustrated Man and Fahrenheit 4051 and Son of the Green and the Omega Man and Son of the Running and Vampire Films from Hammer. We're all looking for something else to hang on to. And here comes these, this I found interesting. Here comes these country guys. L.Q. Jones is a country guy. He's, he's done countless Westerns, appeared in countless American television Western shows. Alvy Moore was on fucking Green Acres <laughs> <laughs> for years. And he was on the Andy Griffith show. Wasn't he like Mr. Ziffle or something? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, like, these guys are like the last guys you'd think that would be into this stuff. And so that was interesting. In a way, and this is like that Peter Fonda connection, too. In a way, I think they want, they, they these guys really believed in this stuff. They really believed, how can I put this? I think, I was saying before earlier, there was a line. I think there were also people in that other, that other side who also thought the same as the counterculture, but they knew they were a minority in their own group, you know? Yeah. I mean, you look at these, they're good old boy looking guys. And so I think they, they took a big, big chance uh, career wise and, and uh, monetarily wise on making this kind of weird Harlan Ellison thing, bringing it to the screen. You know, I, I think they worked really hard in it. They obviously had a super low budget, but they, uh, I think they, they did a good job. There's so many interesting things going on with this film. Like Tim McIntyre, who did the music, he's a character actor for decades. Always played the white-haired, gosh, I don't know how many Mission Impossible season, uh, how many, how many uh, times I've seen him in things like uh, the, uh, I Spy. I'm like, oh my God, this guy did the music. He was like a, you know, a musician. And uh, the, the story here is a little bit mixed up. Yeah, because supposedly they asked Harlan Ellison to adapt his own story. And he's apparently, the, the story goes, he, he tried, but being Harlan Ellison, <laughs> he had writer's block and he couldn't finish it. So yeah, L.Q. Jones and Alvy Moore finished it. And it's hard to adapt a guy like that, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like it's hard to adapt Philip K. Dick. Mm -hmm. It's hard. You know, I'm talking about for the screen. It's hard to adapt William Burroughs. It, it's, it's, it's really hard to adapt Frank Herbert because all the fucking movies look alike. <laughs> Come on. This new Dune costs $400 billion. It's it the same just as the like, old one. <laughs> it looks just like the David Lynch one. Yes. <laughs> I thought that. I got friends saying, oh, my God, I'm picking off from work. I'm like, why don't you just watch the Lynch one? Like, like, at least you get Sting in that one. <laughs> that guy had a great cast. Come on. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. I I, I actually like that film. You will have many things. Oh, okay, work, whatever the fucking stuff. But, you know, there are quotable lines. And this looks like a remake of that one. I didn't even know there was a TV one. <laughs> I didn't know that either. <laughs> there was. There was a t I see. I digress. Sorry, folks. I didn't know there was a TV version of Dune with, uh, is it Ewan McGregor or somebody like that? Now I'm interested to see it. But now that they know they made one, why did they make this one? And anyway, so, <laughs> sorry. But the point being, I think I gave these guys a lot of props for trying to make a low-budget film in the American Southwest based on a really out there outre science fiction writer and they did, I think they did 
a tremendous job, not a successful job, but I think they did a tremendous job, and it should be remembered for being a weird fucking movie that it is. I like, I, but I have to say though, I have to say before we go on to Damnation Alley, mm-hmm. I like that it ended in a very strange yet obliquely positive note. If you know what I'm saying, sure. Yeah, this could have ended cruelly dark. Yeah, True. just like uh, something we never we, we never covered was the George Miller films. Yeah, the uh, he's done other weird things, but yeah, the Mad Max quadrilogy. Mm-hmm. I'm sure if the threat over him all the time of production people saying if you don't do something about this ending, yeah, we'll pull the plug. And uh, I'm sure every George Miller Mad Max film would have ended. Direly. Well, the first one does, pretty much. Yeah. And the second one doesn't end fucking happy either. <laughs> I remember everybody saying at the time, like, how can there be a sequel to Mad Max? <laughs> and yeah. then when we saw The Road Warrior, it didn't end well. Nah. He was all fucked up by the end of that picture. Come on. <laughs> and, and let's not talk about Beyond Thunderdome. Although Tina mm-hmm. Turner was very hot in that, but let's not talk about that. She had a nice outfit, that's for sure. And they that's sp- they stole it for uh, an X-Men annual. Anybody that knows your comic books, there was uh, one that George Perez did when Storm was in that fucking Tina Turner outfit. <laughs> Unless they stole yeah, it from there. Maybe it was the reverse way. I don't know. But same outfit. That chain of bikini. I enjoyed the last Mad Max from although I Fury wrote. I, I just don't know what to make of that. I'm still confused. <laughs> so but, uh, we're going on to... Yeah. W- one more film that's more of a miss than a hit is Damnation Alley where Jamaco Vincent of Bronson's The Mechanic, the vigilante-style picture Defiance, and, of course, the banana-split serial Danger Island, uh-oh, Chongo, George Prepard, Banachek, and Hamill from the A-Team himself, and exploitation regular Paul Winfield are among the few military survivors of World War III, having been sequestered in an underground bunker at the time. Unfortunately, from there on out, it turns into a cross between the far superior, and it's funny to say far superior in this case, uh, Filmation Kids live-action show Arc 2, and the horrible Megaforce, where the trio hop into a big, ugly military transport vehicle to cross the desert radiation zone. They're in search of a lone radio signal, but really only encounter a hooker, one of the kids from the Bad News Bears, a gang of hicks ready to gun them down, and a town full of killer roaches that look more like those annoying potato bugs you get in the roots of plants in your garden with a segmented backs and they roll into little balls to hide. There's really no plot to speak of. The journey's pretty unspectacular. They don't encounter any real flights of imagination or horror to challenge. And the special effects, honestly, they kind of suck. Uh, can you believe this one is filmed with a bigger budget than Star Wars? And apparently the uh, the company had redirected some of the special effects money to Star Wars when they saw what a stinker they had on hand here. So I guess it's got elements of better things. The aforementioned arc 2, the ending more or less of Logan's run. But it simply doesn't work of any, on any level, really. It's an oddity of its era that more or less marked the end of traditional heady hard SF in the wake of the juvenile popcorn cinema on the vein of Lucas and Spielberg without ever really touching on any of the themes or elements that made such films worthy of discussion in the first place. It's actually one of the few SF films of the 70s you can name that justify the change. And while we previously touched on Westworld via its clone-obsessed sequel, Future World, on Peter Fonda's show, and no, we didn't name-check Rollerball when we talked Death Race 2000 in our Stallone show, those films also serve as evidence against the stale, more low-budget, not incredibly high-concept juvenilia than thoughtful adult SF. So that was kind of why I figured, if you want to do this one, let's do it, and let's get close for here. But what do you want to say about this one? Yeah, I want to do it because, yeah, you you actually hit the nail on the head. This, this was... Complete failure. and It had promise pro- and plot, but it never did anything. It had promise and plot, but 
it looks like they, it needed more money. It needed more money for the special effects. It needed more money for the uh, probably for the filming. It looks rushed. It looks like they had a setup that would have been fantastic. Okay, now they're going to go out to the cursed earth. What are they going to encounter out there? Well, a couple of hicks, uh, a girl, a hooker. How about they give the bad news bears? Uh, okay, we need giant roaches. How about we just film these potato bugs close up? All right, done. And then it's well, it. Is, <laughs> and this is this is also at the time where they were. Well, we were talking about so many people over the years and so many French films. Mm-hmm. You know, so many French films were dirigeant in the in the sixties and the seventies. And Dominique Sander yes, was a was a big name in weird cult movies at that time. She was in Beyond Good and Evil, the Lilia Cavani movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was also in uh, Steppenwolf, very strange Herman Hess adaptation with uh, Max von Sydow. So she really wasn't a name. They brought her in for a, a really interesting British film, uh, a Euro spy with Paul Newman called The Macintosh Man. Talk about downer movies. And she was also in 1900, that really long movie with Robert De Niro, Gepard, Gerard. Oh, yeah, like three or five hour movie. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, three or four or five hour movie. But she really wasn't like a name. So they brought her over here for Damnation Alley, figuring like, yeah, oh, yeah, we're going to make it big. And she took, went back to Italy and France after we're like, oh, no, it's a mistake. <laughs> um, pardon me. Everybody knows George Papad. Mm-hmm. It's like, how can you not like this guy? He's so likable. Even when he rarely played unlikable characters. But he was doing a lot of TV at this time, so it was very interesting. They would drag George Papard into a, a major picture. But J. Michael Vincent, well, it's another story. You know, around this time, he still looked like a human being, and he was alive. He's dead now. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, he had done a lot. White Line Fever, Baby Blue, he, uh, Vigilante Force. He was bringing in the crowds. Uh, after this, he did um, Big Wednesday, the big surfing movie and stuff like that. Then he went to Airwolf like uh, four or five years later. But then the drinking started to get horrendous. And he managed to stay alive drinking like a fish until he died. Um, <laughs> Oliver Reed. Sure. <laughs> Oliver Reed. <laughs> Paul Winfield is in this, which is really interesting. I always liked Paul Winfield because he was like one of the most – well-known and closeted gay. I was going to say, wasn't he secretly gay? Yeah, yeah, he was closeted. He, yeah. he, he had lived with his partner uh, from 1972 to the death of his partner in 2002. That was really interesting. He kept it well hidden. He, yes, he did. And Paul Winfield was in everything. The fucking Terminator, Serpent in the Rainbow, Cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, really good Stallone movie, actually. I just watched that the other day. Like, didn't I watch that again? I'll watch it again. Uh, <laughs> and he's in this. And, you know, Jackie Earl Haley, who you can kid. That, ben you know, <laughs> but he was really good in The Watchmen as uh, Rorschach, the movie. And I, I, ne- I never saw this, but he did play Freddy Krueger in the 2010 uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Really? Okay. And he was Willie Loomis in Dark Shadows remake. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. I didn't know that either. It makes sense for that one. Yeah, yeah. That's weird. It's a, the guy that was on the, the you talking about the '90s one, right? Yeah. Holy shit! Because he had like missing teeth and everything. It's a freakish. <laughs> <laughs> he I did. He was know. a mess. That guy. I was like, oh my god, this one of these was disgusting. <laughs> well, no, yeah, I, I don't know. 
anyway, so so what are, what are some of the problems with Damnation Alley? It looks if, to me, it always felt rushed. Rushed, cheap. It doesn't really deliver its promises. And, and so, like, okay, uh, one of the things is because of all the World War Three radiation and the affecting of the weather, the, uh, the sky always red. <laughs> the sky changes a lot, right? Yep. So you think, oh, they're going to do cool things with this. Because the sky was possibly in a perpetual state of change in colors all the time. And I read the book, and the book is pretty cool. The book is downbeat, by the way, the Roger Zelazny book. Right. It's downbeat, so it kind of fits our theme. But the movie, yeah. What they did, it looked like they, they put a fish tank with, like, some colored gel in there. <laughs> And they photo they photographed the fish tank over the over the movie because it was like some of the sloppiest special effects. It's like going to see a, like a Jefferson Airplane show in the sixties. You know, they have the oil yeah. washes. <laughs> That's what it looked like. Wow, I was like, wow. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so it's a complete failure. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking at something now that Zelazny was quite pleased with the first script and expecting it to be the shooting script. However, the studio had somebody come in. Uh, that's what happens. Studio change. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's like the wrong director, the wrong, the wrong cast. Yep. And um, interesting enough, the director's cut ran two hours and 15 minutes of like sloppy effects work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't know how long this thing runs. It, it's a movie. I really enjoyed the book. And it actually fits into our theme of the dystopian uh, conventions. But at the same time, uh, it's like a film that fell apart, and, and I don't think anybody really recovered from this uh, in, in a positive manner. Yeah. So probably, as you said earlier, it's probably the film that led to all these raw, raw, feel-good sci-fi movies. Yeah. And like we said, they, they directly funneled money that was supposed to go to this picture and said, ah, this thing sucks. It's really not working out. You know what? Just send it over to this new guy here. Get this Star Wars. And, you know, the the rest from there, uh, that was kind of it. I mean, there were other films, like I would mentioned in the, in the intro, that kind of trickled through for the next, you know, four or five years, maybe, six years. But by the time we got to 1981, 82, that was kind of the end of it. You really never got, or very, very rarely got, the same sort of thoughtful, hard SF ever again. It would always be either sci-fi horror, emphasis on the horror, uh, sci-fi comedy, or just big, bombastic, audience-pleasing, you know, give the kids a thrill ride and the parents a little titter, uh, sort of, you know, Spielbergian sci-fi. We'd never see this sort of thoughtful, downbeat um, message film again. That's kind of lost in the wind for, you know, what it's been 40, 50 years now. Well, there were, there were a few, and two of them really downbeat, two of them by the same director, Denis uh, Bellanue who did, I just joked about his version of Dune, but who did uh, The Arrival, which is really messed up sci-fi movie. <laughs> <laughs> you have to see it. You have to see it. It's like, what? It's like one of the most depressing recent science fiction films ever, and I don't imagine how the hell they figured this one out. And and the Blade Runner semi-sequel, uh, what was that called? 20 Blade Runner, whatever it's called. And, which I thought was very, very good. But also depressing as hell. <laughs> well, it doesn't and, have to be depressing. It's just we're talking about films that have a message that are supposed to get, be thoughtful and maybe even a warning no, against, no, you know. Both, both those films have messages, but yeah. they, were, they were depressing. 
because they're made within the last 10 to 15 years where we're living in a depressing state. Yeah, and that's what it is. These films were intended to warn you about where we could be going based on current events, and here's what it must be in the future. Here's a possible future postulated from if we continue down this road. Maybe we should do something about it. And that's the spirit that most or all of these films and other ones that I'd thrown out there that we need to discuss previously or will be suggesting again soon uh, were of that era. And that's kind of what hard SF is and always has been. Uh, it's really a lot less of the let's throw in the Tolkien and the Elves and Trolls and all that stuff or throw in some horror stuff a la Alien, although the first Alien was pretty close to hard SF as it was. You know, a predator or something like that. That's definitely, you know, not. It's a sci fi horror. No, and it's nothing to do with sci fi. Yeah. yeah. These things were intended to do something. Like, here is a call to action. Here is a warning. And, you know, people unfortunately don't always listen, or the wrong people listen and say, yeah, let's make that happen. Woohoo! <laughs> but it's, unfortunately, it seems to be more or less a lost art. Uh, maybe just because of the wheels of commerce and the way things run nowadays, but maybe just because nobody's really allowed to be an auteur anymore. Nobody has the money. If you want the funding, you've got to have, submit to the boardroom committee, and a bunch of guys stick and blow up their nose and say, yeah, yeah, make it happen. Uh, can you make it look like this? Uh, well, no, it had nothing to do with that film, but okay. <laughs> well, well take, a, take a look at The Arrival, and uh, I'm curious what you think. It's slow, mm-hmm. but, but uh, it's got some good things in it. So, uh... Anything else you want to close out on? Or? No, I think that's our show, right? All right. Yeah. So thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our well, it's more serious than usual little drawing room chat on. It's good, isn't it, when we're serious folks? It's very good. <laughs> Some of the dystopias of the early 70s, hard sci-fi genre. Next time, I don't know. Did you want to stick on something similar? Like maybe we could do Kubrick or, uh, you know, I could try to find those apes films. We could do those or... Oh, let's do Kubrick. Let's get really fucking uh, All right. depressed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next time we will do the films of Stanley Kubrick. This should be fun. It would be fun. And you know what? Um, the, the Tom Cruise, the Tom Cruise, the Tom Cruise Kubrick movie is so weird. I, I love I that film. <laughs> you like that? I love that film, yeah. Okay, uh, good. All right. <laughs> It is really weird, and it's not what you expect. It's, it's we're certainly not sci-fi. <laughs> it's certainly not sci-fi, but this is all leading up to our Tom Cruise Association the, the, homoerotic the, the, fest. This is coming up soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I know you've always kind of taken a shine to Tom there. <laughs> I've seen that. <laughs> I do. I like him. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, yeah. Okay. Okay, thank you for joining us. <laughs> I, I got to say, just objectively, anybody out there that does not think that that guy doesn't age, you're not looking at him. What the fuck is with this genetics? <laughs> it's great, right? I tell you, it's creepy. Uh, so he's doing something right. Anyway. He's 57? Yeah. So, so I, I, it's going to go. be 58, and he's, like, jumping off of fucking bridges, jumping off of planes in space. He barely looks 38. I mean, I don't know. You don't I know. It's a guy's amazing. It must be all that semen he's drinking. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who was supposed to be? Was that supposed to be David Bowie? Where they had a, oh, no, it was Rod Stewart, where they supposedly had to pump his stomach for that. <laughs> you remember that rumor? Yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Rod the Sod, who the hell knows? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, because it was, it was a bet he had with Liza Minnelli, and they were at a Bukaki party. I remember that. That, no, it's true. That part was true. That circulated in all the gay circles because Liza was there. And that was at the point where she was a total slut. Yeah, well. 
<laughs> wow. Don't you guys love how these shows end on a weird note? The but... things you learn. Here's a serious show. Let's talk about Rod the Saw getting a stomach pump for cum and, <laughs> and why is it Bukaki parties? <laughs> All right, so Kubrick is next, so we. It's not that bad because the guy didn't only did like, what, how many movies? I, it's nothing. It was like five to seven films, but, you know, they're good ones, so. All right. We will talk that next time. And if you'd like to contact us, hear comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, you'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. Of course, we're on Podbean, thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're on iTunes. Look us up under the Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes inside the Goldmine podcast. Otherwise, if you're particular, ID is 553-402-044. We're also on Spotify. Amazon, when we do the podcast, and God knows we could be anywhere else, <laughs> all over the damn web, because I think one of the sites of Poppy pushes us in things like Stitcher. So um, just look us up under the Third Eye Cinema, which is the Go My Podcast, and I'm sure you will find us out there, whatever your search engine may be. So, we're just set to go mine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Poppy. And we'll see you next time for Stanley Kubrick and more fun frolics and uh, odd stories about <laughs> guys from the Hollywood stars. <laughs> It'll be fun. Thank you so much for listening. All right. Take care. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. 
This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Oh. Hello. Too bad you missed that fart. That was lovely. No, it's good. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, so how you doing? Uh, I actually was better the last 
two days earlier today i you know i take bad advice <laughs> go for a walk every day and i'm like okay and i felt good and then i come back i sit down for a few minutes now my lunch hour and i'm like whoa but i gotta do this so i took a hot shower and i'll get through this mm-hmm. yeah i i don't know what the story is why it started and it's been inconsistent in its consistency i put it that way you know? yeah no, i know how that is so what is it sciatica or whatever again i think so but I'm going to a professional person, uh, yeah. 12. Um, I'll tell you this. My experience was the guys that did the MRIs and the tests and all that had no fucking clue. And they tried to give you cortisone shots, and that didn't work and whatever else. I was better off with the chiropractor and some exercises that he gave me, which are basically like, you know, different kinds of leg lifts. And, you know, you ice it, you heat it, you uh, do stretch, a lot of stretching. Yeah, I'll see. I mean, I, I really don't want to go near a massage or a, a chiropractor because it is so painful. A, sitting upright sometimes takes a few minutes. Ouch. That's bad. Yeah, that's bad. So, uh... Definitely get that look there because you got something up there. Something's going on. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that... Uh, so, I got my new computer and uh, it's super fast. Yeah. It's a Dell 12, 12 gig, I think. Is that a 12 gig? Yeah, I was running a 4 gig before. I was just getting so slow and just starting it. It was like, oh, come on. <laughs> um, but no, it took a while to uh, get everything connected. Mm-hmm. You and, probably don't have all your old programs that you loved. And... No, it doesn't. It yeah. doesn't. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Um, I did save a lot. Of, I got a portable uh, hard drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, on super sale for like thirty dollars. Mm-hmm. LG though, so you know. So, yeah. And I remember when they were like two hundred, like you know, eight years ago. Yeah. You know, I got. I said, let me get a trillabyte, whatever it's called, and uh, terabyte, probably. Yeah. Yeah, terabyte, trillabyte too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's amazing what can fit in those things. So, you know. Oh yeah, I got several. I got it with all the music that comes in. Yeah. Western Digital is usually the best if you can get those, but it's not consistent. Even brands aren't consistent. you got to be really careful. So I transferred everything over, but one or two things, because, like, did I really need these? And I, I then wiped the old computer, mm-hmm. the old desktop. I have to decide what to do with that. You know, she wanted to send to the Philippines at some point. And I said, you know what? I can wrap this thing, but still, it's going to take a beating. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have the kind of stuff that they, they ship it in when they send it, you know, to you. And so I, I don't know. I might, I'll have to see. It's big. This thing's a monster. This oh, one's, yeah. this new one is much wider mm-hmm. and longer. So, uh, yeah. And I'm going to you back. Well, here's, here's the outrageous thing. It was nearly seven with tax mm-hmm. but didn't come with a D- dvd cd drive i'm like for that kind oh, of money they're starting to do that now yeah and, and yeah go ahead you know they just hate you to have anything physical i, I think they're probably gonna try to do it with flash drives the way they're going is crazy and, and and uh my old one which is about 10 years old had all these you know the blue tinted uh, USB ports, which means you you know you use those for your more special you know yeah. connections. It had more, I think, more ports. I got some in the front, some in the back, and I'm full up almost. 
But, uh, I, yeah, I said to myself, geez, I'm paying almost $800 here. You don't have a fucking DVD drive. Not that I would play one or, or, or a CD drive. You know, I like to maybe pop something in and put it in my system. Yeah, rip it over or vice versa. I mean, a lot right. of stuff, I keep physical backups of everything. I mean, I don't just trust the, the hard drives. I've got, like, CDs and DVD backups of stuff. So, you know, when I need something from 12 years ago, which happens a lot, I'm like, oh, let me go pull that out. I know I got it there. Go look it up, find what your disc is on, and throw it in there and pull it back on again. Throw it on the iPod or whatever. So speaking speaking of Western Digital, I, I bought one for 50 bucks. Right. And again, years ago, this would have been a fortune. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, so all in all, I'm spending way too much money, but uh, <laughs> every, everything runs really fast. But to get this machine with a CD, DVD drive. Well, you can get a portable one, I'll say that. No, I got the portable one that's attached. Right. Yeah, yeah that's what I got. But to, to, to get this machine with that installed, it's like, I got a lot of money. I'm yeah. like, come on. Yeah, they are starting to do that now. That's what I was afraid of. That's why I asked. Oh, geez, for as long as you back. Well, it's like my friend who was talking for months about getting a new car, and I, I saw him the other day. I said, hey, are you getting a new car? And he goes, you know what? The new cars don't come with CD drive, uh, CDs. What the hell? CD players. And I'm hearing that crap cars are going for like 40 grand. I'm like, what? Hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. You're kidding me here. He's got, he's got one of these big-ass uh, cars. Yeah. And... Uh, Oh, he's got just satellite, that's it? No, right now he's got, you know, a CD thingy, and uh, you pop it in, it reads it, and uh, you, know, you, you can store the music in there. But all the new cars he's looking at has nothing like that. So what they, they, they use flash drives. Yep, unbelievable. And you know what else I'm hearing? A lot of these things now are using those damn key fobs. You don't actually have keys anymore. Oh, yeah. So people are leaving the damn key fobs in the car. And anybody can just drive it away. <laughs> and, of course, you know what happens in a flood or any other stupid situation. And, of course, now they're going to start going everything electronic. I hear that, uh, I don't know if it's Ford, Chevy, or Cadillac, one of those three. Within the next, like, three to five years, they want to make it all electric. I'm like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not that green. Uh, who, who did I see post a real diatribe against that? Oh, the guy from Nectar, the band Nectar. Yeah. Yeah, he's... British dude's been living in the States for uh, God knows how many years, and, you know, Nectar are based in the States now. You know, there's only a few original guys in there, maybe two or three. Yeah. Uh, he's a hardcore Trump motherfucker. And he posted the other day totally against Joe Biden and electric cars, and he just his post went on and on. And I was, like, curious and scrolling, not reading. You know, I read some of it. Yeah. And he's like, you know how much? Uh, you have to have in your house or your garage and a battery to run this thing, to key to charge it up. It's all bullshit and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, go ahead, dude. You, know? <laughs> you don't charge it at your house. Go charge at those ports they got in the, the malls and things lately. I'm seeing yeah. them pop up all over the place. Yeah, I know. But this guy was totally on a rant. He's not, he's, yeah. he's not you know, I'm like, I like your music, but man. <laughs> that happens all the time. Always a gun fanatic, too. Oh, great. <laughs> No, nah, he totally fits into this thing, you know. But the electric cars freak me out. It's just like how they got all these cars now that, number one, there's two things they do. One is they're like two-cylinder engines, and they make it like, because usually what they do is they torque that up fast to make it drive like it's four or six-cylinder, right? Bad enough. 
because they break easier, obviously. But what happens is, to fake you out, this if you have like a powerful engine, they put some little like outboard motor sound in it. To, and you, every time you hear these cars going by, I'm like, what the hell? And you know it's not a real engine. You know it's like a, a kid's toy. It's like those old, uh, we used to have these machine guns. And you would pull the trigger on it, and obviously it's fake yeah. guns, right? And, and, like, <laughs> and the kids thought they were like shooting like a real machine gun. Same thing with these cars. But the other thing that's even worse than that is every time you pull up to a light, the cars will shut off. And you hear like, click, click. Oh, wait, pause. Click, click. And they go back on. Like, wait a minute. What happens? How many problems are you inviting here? You get enough problems with a normal, like, fuel-injected vehicle that all these things can go wrong, especially in, you know, when the weather gets colder, when the weather gets hotter, when it's raining, when it's, you know, dry out, whatever the hell it is. Why do you want to invite extra shit? It was like back when they said the pop-up lights, remember those? Mm-hmm. And I'd always see, everybody I knew that had one, like, oh, no, these are great, these are great. And you'd always see, like, one of them was stuck down permanently. Or It's like, why are you inviting extra bullshit? Just keep as much manual as you can, and then, you know, okay, you want to have less extra flourishes, fine, but... Don't, like, you know, ask for trouble, and that's what they're doing. And look at the computer chip issue. I mean, I know for a fact, if I didn't get that thing where uh, that guy that uh, gave me the refurb, if I, that didn't happen, I'd still be waiting for getting my goddamn car fixed. And it kept, like, doing all kinds of crazy shit just because there's a computer chip in there. And now there's a computer that runs these cars even more than mine. So I was like, why are you inviting all this bullshit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, and some people, they, they buy new stuff and they they do weird things to it. I know this guy just bought it. His car got destroyed in, uh, this in New Jersey, Hurricane Ida. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, he showed pictures. I couldn't believe it. I was like, holy shit. Some yeah. people just got to, you know, he's a nutley. And, you know, it's like. We really lucked out because we had no problem whatsoever. But, like, two or three streets over, people were getting destroyed. So, yeah, yeah, his car got destroyed. So he went out and bought a, a Kia. A new Kia, mm-hmm. and he, he fucking ripped out the lights that came with this brand new car. He goes, "I like LED lights. I put these in." I'm like, "You idiot! <laughs> why? Why would you do that?" You know, well, you customizing. He's but, yeah. customizing, but he, he had it for a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a Kia. It's not like a nice car. It's just like, okay, well, yeah, you want to trick it out, make it cool. Hi <laughs> guys. <laughs> All right, you want you want to test this audio and then yeah. uh, let me know. All right, let's and do I'll, that. And I'll refill while, we, while you do that. Okay. okay. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. <sighs> so what's up? How are you doing? All right, hanging in there. Yeah, this uh, booster shot really wipes you out. Yeah, I'm surprised you were able to get one this early. Well, the funny thing was, I saw some people that I know getting them locally. Mm-hmm. Like one guy said last Sunday, yeah, was it last Sunday? I think so. Oh, there's a truck thing that's located here or there, and I ran out and I couldn't find a truck. Right. And then uh, the next day, uh, this woman that I know that's uh, living with this guitar player, also in my neighborhood, she said, uh, she listed a number, and mm-hmm. she said she's trying to get through, and blah, blah, blah. So I called it. I said, when did you last have it? And I said, oh, you have to wait till October. It was okay, but I said, uh, I'm this age, and I'm on 
blood pressure medication. So they said, you know, I said, you know, October's not that far. Yeah. And she said, hold on. Oh, when would you like to come? So, oh, how about tomorrow? Because, <laughs> you know, I knew a storm was coming, uh, what, Tuesday night or whatever. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went there. There was nobody there. All these people sitting around. You know, just people are not getting shots, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they gave it to me, and I felt fine. I actually felt better than the first two shots, which right away I felt like, ah. Right. And by that night, which when the storm came, I was like, oh, shit. I feel like terrible. I couldn't sleep, and it's raining and everything. Yeah, and every day I just feel like, Amplifies my back issue, this right. issue. Right. Yeah, and uh, I'm feeling a little better, but a lot of. Uh, oy. <laughs> <laughs> but. But. Yeah, at the same time, I got three D's in my system now, so I look at it as a good thing, you know? Yeah, sure. You're ahead of everybody else. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 funny. And <laughs> coincidentally, last night, uh, King Crimson played PNC. Okay. And I had these people texting me. You know, I'm sitting down watching a movie last night, and I'm like, who's that? I never, these are people I've never heard from, to tell you the truth. Like, I gave them my number a long time ago. Yeah. And they're local, like, are you here? I'm at PNC seeing, seeing Crimson. I'm like, no. Oh. <laughs> Hi, Louis, it's this one. I, are you a here? Where are you? I'm like, just fucking people never talk to me. <laughs> I'm like, no. Are you going to any other shows? I said, no, Crimson. I'm going to see Genesis in December, Rick Wakeman in October. And I take one other show. I'm not buying any other shows. So I'm actually waiting to see how it goes with these. Right. I have tickets for it. You never know. You know? Yes, there are bands. I'd like to see, I see everybody's coming out of the woodwork, but I also see bands canceling. Yes. Because people are getting sick, like, uh, what was it, Paul Stanley, then Gene Simmons? Yep. And I just don't want to take any more. That being said, I talked to Mr. Chiller mm -hmm. uh, last week, and because uh, it's been about a month since I talked to him, and a month ago, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, if you could do this, it's going to be in a smaller room with the Q&A, you know, because of this and that, and not have bands. And so I talked to him last week, and he's like, oh, yeah, we're going to have bands. Oh, okay. Okay. And he said, uh, so I said, so what room will I be doing this in? What do you mean? You're going to have that big room as always. So he said, what about the smaller room? What are you talking about? I said, you're the guy that told me you'll be doing a small room because of COVID. He goes, here's his attitude now in the whole fucking thing. Well, if you don't get a shot, it's up to you. You need to wear a mask. If you already got a shot, you got nothing to worry. I said, just, you know, he's cuckoo anyway. Yeah. So I can't say, you know you're opening yourself up for a big lawsuit in case somebody comes, even if it's a Trumpian anti-vaxxer or not even a trumpian just an anti-vaxxer or somebody i'm immune because i didn't get sick yet they could turn around and say i got sick at the show i was in the hospital right yeah sure that's a lot of potential problems for him but he's just you know i don't know <laughs>
So somebody messaged me yesterday and he said, you're going, I'm so excited for Joe. I said, you know what? I told him, I said, I didn't commit yet. When you're not going, I said, I was like texting. I said, you don't know why? <laughs> <laughs> you know, why? So you got your boost, you posted about it. I said, yeah, but still. Sure. And whether it's true or not, you know, it could be. So to say I don't get sick at all, well, I hope I don't. <laughs> It's tough enough getting these shots. Mm -hmm. um, what happens if somebody gets sick from me? You know? Yep. You know, and, and you would never know anyway, but that's... Come on, you know? Yeah, this is kind of crappy. It's kind of crappy. Also, people are canceling at the show, and I was interested to speak to uh, Xander Varkov. Remember Frankenstein? It's bloody... No, not that one. Dracula versus... Whichever one of us. Yes. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, the Al Adams and, and Kevin said, he's not coming. He said, oh, he's still on your website. He's coming down today. I said, oh, yeah. You don't want him to come, to come because of the virus. Yeah, sure. Said, well, well, I understand that. And he told me, I don't know, maybe he's got a lot of pressure after having canceled for two years mm -hmm. to do this show. I don't know, maybe it's a money thing. And he said to me, well, I said to Xandor, well, his name is Roger, right? Roger Engel or something? Yeah. He said, I said to him, well, if you're vaccinated, what are you worried about? He said, he said I got no response, so he's not coming. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and I'm like, come on. You've been, no, anyway, so that's that. Yeah. But anyway, I'm hanging in there. <sighs> Listening to... I've actually petered off a bit because I did a lot of shows uh, that I pre-recorded right. onto video, and I didn't upload them uh, uh, onto YouTube until like you know, one here, one there. I got two more to do because I thought I was going back to work September 13th. Right. I ain't going back to work until January. Oh, that's a plus. Let's get more time. Yeah, it was a big surprise. I was like two weeks before I was supposed to go back. They delayed everything for the obvious reason. Yeah. yeah I'm still booting this up, so let's uh, this damn thing still runs off Windows XP. Is it that, that's your laptop, right? Or you no, no, no. This is, uh, I'm talking to you on the laptop. This is off the old uh, desktop. Yeah, I got a new one coming this week. Um, I bought this about five or six, you know, these things don't last that long. That's the problem. Yeah, about five or six years ago. It was a four gig. I had a check. So I'm getting a 12 gig because it's running slow and I got, you know, I usually delete the videos when I'm done. Right. And uh, most of my music, I moved over to Apple. I know I have to talk to some savvy person at some point. Like, so where do I do it with them now? But it's running slower and starting up like, oh, it takes forever. So, yeah, I have a new, I have a new Dell coming. Which I'm pretty pleased with Dell. It comes with, you know, Windows, whatever it is. And, but the thing is, I got a lot of stuff on here. Mm -hmm. So I had a call, uh, last night I called a tech friend of mine from work. And I got his number and I said, hey, what's the easiest way to transfer a lot of stuff? He says, get an external hard drive, put it on that. And then when you hook up your new computer, just take it off the external hard drive. So I found it for like $29. Wow. You know, an external hard drive? I remember like 
$200 back in the day. And I said, oh, this is really cool. It's small and easy. Yeah, I have a bunch of them because I have to back up all this music and stuff, but not with 29 bucks. That's pretty cheap. Well, it was originally 150 but it's a Labor Day sale. Okay. So I was like, all right. Well, yeah, the, the desktop was originally, wow, what was it? Is that going on now over at Amazon? No, Best Buy. Oh, Best Buy, okay. Amazon's not doing too much for Labor Day, uh, surprisingly. Yeah. They've been skimpy lately. I don't know what the problem is. He's putting it all into his penis rocket. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I... The wife wants to send some laptops to the Philippines, so I, I was on Best Buy last night. Yeah. And... Uh... These are like eighteen hundred laptops. I know. I said, "Are you sure about this?" The, 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 they were highly rated, mm-hmm. and I said, "Do you realize?" Yeah, she's like, "I take them on the plane." I said, "No, forget about it. You're gonna have to send them, and not in a Balakayan box. You're gonna have to send them some other way because these are twenty-inch screens. They're big. They're like mini TVs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because all of the, the the kids there, you know, the teenagers, they're doing virtual learning. Yeah. I said, they, you know, the dimensions of this 19-inch screen, so you know the box is going to be big as it is. Well, what's in the box? I said, well, you know, the battery and the charger and all this other shit. And I said, you're looking at a box for a small screen TV. I said, you can't carry this. Also, with COVID, you're going to be flagged. Hi, what are, what are these five computers? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. She just want to get on the plane and get out. Yeah, because she's going in December for the whole month. And so, here's a funny story since you asked me. Um, I was looking for some really hard-to-find Italian product. None of my sources had it. So I just threw in the eBay subject, music, doing this Italian band. Pretty obscure. Uh, I wanted to buy it really, but you know, it's, it's hard to find for some of these things. Even on a, a re-release for something like Mara Cash, or, you know, uh, Black Widow, mm-hmm. which does metal too, you know. Oh yeah, I guess I'm Black Widow. Yeah, yeah. Even even the recent Black Widow 2017 or 2019 re-release on vinyl. Actually, the best one to get is Pesky G, where they're the same band. But oh wait, yes, that was good. But you might like that one. It's kind of like Cherry Red. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, remind me about that again. But the first Black Widow that came out later on, I think they called it, was it Requiem? I don't know, but what it is, it's the original version of their first album, Mm -hmm. and it's got a lot of K, I forget her name, K Parker, what the hell? The female vocals. Yeah, instead of like, the the release version was all his vocals. Uh, The Mm -hmm. girl who used to be the vocalist in Pesky G did all the vocals on it, or most of them. It's really good. So I, I made a list, and then, because uh, about the one thing I have good credit with nowadays is PayPal, and they have this thing called PayPal Credit. Right. So I said, would you like to apply for that? And they gave me a thing like three grand, which I blew through most of it already. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm in eBay, and I went to Deep Discount Store since they, if you go to their website, you can't find this shit. But if yeah. you go to the eBay page, you find it. So... I got some vinyl, I got some Italian CDs, and I was just sitting there, I'm like, well, yeah, I got like $200 worth of stuff here. Ah, let me throw in some, so I threw in some of those Severin box, you know, ridiculous prices, and I said, yeah, 
It's kind of pricey. And these things are starting to inch up. I, you and I had a discussion when they were yes. 24 and became 29. Now I'm seeing these things at 34, marketed down to 29. Like, it's still high. Yeah, it is. It's ridiculous. And don't forget, these guys yeah. are putting out all of a sudden, they're finding the Franco films. All of a sudden, they get into those last Nashy films. Like, yeah, why didn't you do that when it was like a normal price? Uh, you know, <laughs> fucking assholes. So. You just kind of sit around like half a year waiting to see if they do a sale I get or not. It if and if it still's any good. Yeah, but it's like, it's like guys, if you make a, a thousand copies, it's not going to cost you more. They're making a hundred right. for a hundred. And then they're making them high-priced. You know, hey, look, we're broke. You know, I just said spend, I spent a lot of money, but I got that credit thing. Yeah, I blew through it, like I said. I'm paying that off. I could pay it off. But I got a lot of music here. I got I got some movies here which I'll get to eventually. Most of this country, yeah. most of this country is broke whether they know it or not because even if they're living in a nice yeah. place, they're living in like hand to mouth paycheck to paycheck, and they will say like, oh, you're supposed to save like a million dollars to retire or some shit. Like really? And yet in the same article, they always say, oh yeah, people don't have even like a thousand bucks saved up in their bank account in case they have an emergency. Yeah. I'm like really? <laughs> and they're gonna the prices up on everything, food, you know? Fuck you. I mean, I was looking around a couple of months ago, like, what, what do I really don't, you know, I, I wasn't attached to that Gretsch guitar, that one, I, the last one I got. And uh, so I put it on Craigslist, and I put it on, like, 10 different places online. And I would get people, I'll be there tomorrow for $200, I'm selling it for four. What you, you know. <laughs> or, does it come with a case? Did you read the ad? No case, no cords. Well, it doesn't come with, if it came with a case, you think I'm going to give it to you for this price? Yeah, exactly. Would you take 290 Yeah. And so my Craigslist thing expired because I wasn't monitoring it. I couldn't even mm-hmm. find the thing of it anywhere. So we'd have to completely rebuild that. I forgot it's still listed on the internet somewhere. Yeah, guys or guitar players say, that's a, that's a new guitar. It's really nice. You're probably going to get that money easy. But I don't know, I always, some guy, you know, and people say they're coming, they don't show up. So, you know, I clean it up, you know, I tune it up, bring out the amp, and I play it for a while. Like, oh, maybe I'll keep it. I don't know, you know. And then I forget, I got it listed somewhere. So somebody goes, is this still available? I'm like, yeah, it's still available. And then goes, guy sent me a picture of a Casio. Would you trade? I'm like. I have Yamaha Casio, uh, Yamaha keyboards. Why would I get a Casio for this? Are you crazy? <laughs> and, but I don't say that. I just say I have a couple of keyboards. Thank you. Like, it's crazy. I mean, I sold some stuff off it, like, you know, five and ten bucks a pop a couple months back. Mm. But a lot of it just sits there, but nobody cares. And if they want it, they want it for, like, I don't know what, for free or something. Like, get out of here. <laughs> well, somebody sent me... Um, relation to this, somebody sent me a message, I have a PRS, would you trade? I'm like, what? What do you got? Yeah. It's a PRS acoustic. I said, well, what model is it? I sent you a picture. I said, no, what model is it? Yeah. Come on. <laughs> you got it there. I can't see from the picture. Yeah, of course. Turned out it was 2012, right? So, you know, PRS guitar is rather acoustic. Electric. They're expensive. So uh, the reviews were pretty good on it. So I said, looks pretty nice. Can you send me you know, a picture of the headstock, a better picture? He did that. I said, so would you trade? 
So, so he had it in a nice blue velvet case. This is a Commodore case. He goes, no, I just sold the case. I said, all right. Well, yours comes with a case. I'm like, no. Oh, it doesn't come. Here we go with the case thing again. I said, look, it's a Gretsch. Mm. It's a semi-hollow body. First of all, they come in particular cases. Right. You think I'm going to give you this guitar <laughs> with a case? For, for an acoustic you got that's already 10 years old, that has no case. No. That's what baffles me. Somehow, these companies are getting away with charging these insane prices. People are snapping them up somehow because they're always like running out. They've always got no stock left. And yet, if they come to you, then they want it for free. I'm like, excuse me? Yeah, because I, I talked to my guys at Sweetwater. Uh, I, I, I pretty much uh, talk to them every so often. We... we chat to shoot the shit and they're like martin is way way behind uh, epiphone is way behind gibson is way way behind in stock right. they said because it's done in asia right and it's done in south america and because of covid a lot of the factories have been closed and they're slowly reopening but they said the backlog is ridiculous some of the stuff like fahrenheit 451 we should cover that one oh. uh it's great some of his stuff is like, huh? What? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. A lot of true foe stuff is is to the probably. Well, you know, I, I'll probably quote myself again when we do it live. You know, like you know, we record it. It's like it's impenetrable for the average film goer. You know? Right, because he was such a uptight little film critic. That he was, oh, I'm going to draw from this obscure film from Rafiki or whatever the hell. Right, right. And who would know that, you know? And it, was, it wasn't until years later you can go back to something. You didn't get it. And then you would get it, you know? Right. And and then, uh, but by that time, nobody else cares. Nobody cares, exactly. <laughs> it's like if you run into the, the shade, you know, uh, films of so-and-so 15 years ago. If I was back in like 1978, you know, trying to chat some bro that you pick up at a disco, you know, like we could talk all night about, you know, like a Woody Allen film. Like, oh yes, let's talk about the vagaries of Hitchcock versus, uh, you know, Claude Chabrol. And, you know, what did he mean by this? Suck your foreskin off. Exactly right. And now it's like, huh? What? You're weird. <laughs> what are you talking weird. about? Or you're old. You must be old, you know. Uh huh. Oh yeah, I got that too. Yeah, it's like, come on. I know. Now we could, you know, when. Right. Oh, by the way, so you had a get together with your friends. Did you go anywhere? No. Uh, the one guy. It's it's a long story, but it was a scheduling nightmare. Mm -hmm. uh, we all planned on doing this for a while, and it was like, okay, do we go down to their place? Do we go up to my other friend's place, which is near, nearby? And we were supposed to spend the weekend, basically. Go down there on Friday, do this thing over three days. And in between, they were going to have, like, themed meals and whatever the hell else and lots of booze. And uh -huh. I didn't know if they had anything else planned, but that was basically how it was going to go. Well, last minute, the one guy that was uh, – it's a long story, but he was kind of the, the one that introduced us to these half these people. Mm. He says, oh, yeah, last minute. He's like, yeah, I can't do all-nighters, and we're just going to come down on Saturday – and, you know, we'll leave Sunday morning because um, he made some story about his cat or some shit, but I don't know what the real story was. Mm -hmm. So this was, like, right on top of it. It was, like, within the week. I was like, oh, God, what the hell are we doing now? So I'm like, all right, well, we, we already committed to this. Nobody really backed out. So I'm like, all right, so we're going to drive all the way down there for you know, where the hell it is, down to Delaware. 
mm-hmm. uh, just to go be there for a day and do a regular, you know, short session like we do every freaking week anyway online. We'll figure, all right, fine, let's get to see these people's house. You know, I never saw them in person or whatever, fine. So we go down there, and first off, we had a problem with the easy pass tolls. And long story, but it had to do with we couldn't figure out what was going on. The GPS was telling us one thing. They had this one section with uh, no tolls whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It was just like cameras or whatever the hell. And I always thought, you know, that's the way it was on other parkways, like the turnpike or whatever, that that means you're going off on a further exit, and then they put the toll there. No, there's no toll. So I'm like, ah, fuck it. But we just, you know, considered to like, run the toll somehow. So uh, I went and contacted them, and they said, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. I'll just, you know, pay the toll would have been. I'll just, you know, send this note in it with it, and uh, you're, you're fine, no big deal. But we were concerned about this whole week. I'm like, ah, oh, crap, are they going to... There's some crazy penalty or whatever. Because we hear all kinds of crazy stories about this stuff. I don't know. Mm. Ever since they put Easy Pass in, they got crazy. So that was on the way down. Of course, it was like 100 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> we are driving all this way down there. By the time we get down there, like our clothes are soaked. And there was a lot of traffic, even though we tried to pick a good time. Because of the way this guy set it up. It's like, oh, I'm going down in the morning. And, ah, God. So we didn't leave until around, I don't know, 11 o'clock, 11.30, which would not have been my choice. And this is on a weekend, too. So once we got down to the Delaware area, it was like dead stopped for a while. I guess they have some kind of beach that they can get through out there. I don't know. So we get down there finally. It's out in the middle of all these cornfields and shit. And <laughs> you're going down and there's like a trailer park on one side of the highway. Two feet down is somebody's converted they look like those uh, pods that you see on people's lawns. Mm-hmm. So they have one of them that is the general store or something. The next one is supposedly a church and then the next one is somebody's supposed house. And then there's a trailer park again. And that's basically what it was down the highway. I'm like, holy shit, where are we? Uh, <laughs> then we go outside, and it's all cornfields and wheat fields with these big lines of threshers and whatever the hell else. Like, for miles. I'm like, oh, my God. Where the hell do people live? And I've seen their houses, and they spread. It turns out they have a little tiny uh, community. It's almost like a gated community mm-hmm. of these not like mansions, but nice little houses and this you know, cul-de-sac and whatever the hell else. But five of them went out in the middle of this cornfield with all these hicks and trailer trash. So we're like, oh, wow, this is a great area. So we finally get down and do that. And then the guy doesn't show up till even later because his car broke down. <laughs> so when he finally gets down, they're like rushing to go and try to cook stuff or whatever the hell. They forgot some ingredients. Uh, they didn't have some kind of booze. All the, everything got curtailed and cut off and messed up. We did this really quick session. We had some food, some of which was great, some of which was terrible. And that was it. So it was like, it was great to see them. We still sort of had fun because, you know, there's a lot of people just hanging around the kitchen and bullshit and having a drink or whatever. Mm-hmm. But was it what it was planned to be? <laughs> Everything went totally wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. I, 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 hate, I hate when things happen like that. Huh? Exactly. It was a disaster in a lot of respects. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Now I was curious because I know you were looking forward to that. Good to get yeah. out, though, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it was good to get out, and it was nice seeing those people. I wouldn't have given it up to you know for whatever, but geez, it really was not what it was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With all the trouble of getting there, you know, if you showed up and you know, hey, the food's ready. You want some? Oh, I'm starving. No, like exactly. No. <laughs> You know how long, I was like snacking on carrots all day long from like, this must have been around 1 o'clock when we got there, mm-hmm. until they finally put the food out at like 8.30. Oh <laughs> so when they finally put it out, and the one thing that was really good, it was like bacon wrapped around meat and whatever else, I couldn't even have a second one. 
And actually, the one guy that knows me was shocked. Like, what? That's all you have? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll take it home with me or something tomorrow because that was just, I'm full from eating carrots all freaking day. So, <laughs> so the next day, we're like, okay. I was like, where's those things there? And it turns out that the one had taken some. That was okay because she's a vegetarian, so they made vegetarian ones and taken them. But the only other one that was still there, which I guess would have been mine, <laughs> the person that lived there took a bite out of it or something and then left the rest. It's like, all right, forget it. Don't worry yeah, about it. <laughs> Oh well, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I, I you know, it's you know, I work insane hours, and I don't get to shop, and, and you know, I, I get some things Amazon Fresh, but you know, they have a limited availability. This stuff comes from Whole Foods, you know, mm-hmm. and they have a limited. Some things you just can't find. Like I want this, you know, and they don't have it. Yep. Going to a superstore means. Meanwhile, out of the car, it's like... Oh, that must be fun. Yeah, you know, uh, 15 or $20 Uber or Lyft rides, and I'm like, do I really want to do that? And the buses don't go down near these places anymore for months now. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, okay, so I have to make it where I do such a crazy shot, then it's, I'm like, okay, you know... That's worth it all. Something, that's yeah. worth it all. And, and I haven't been doing that lately, so I'm like, I got coffee and vodka. <laughs> and I actually ran out of vodka, and somebody visited last week, and they said, oh, I heard you were running out. Well, I didn't say anything, so some word must have got around. I said, oh, I thought you was big, giant, smart. I'm like, oh, thank you, man. <laughs> it's strawberry. You know, I don't like flavored vodka. Yeah. I thanked them anyway. They left, and I said, how do we crack this open? Oh, my God, it's so nasty. <laughs> and it's a good brand, but... You can't put flavors in. That's one thing you can't put flavors in. No, 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 no. It's like, oh. Yeah. Even a good brand. You know, like, oh. Because I have flavors <laughs> that are cheap. But, yeah, so I put, I, but the, the last time I went to one of those big places, I got, like, a 50-ounce coffee. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to find chocolate. Oh, that's a 50 ounces, a big, giant can. Yeah. yeah, sure. You know, the life of uh, a guy who's virtually alone all the time. <laughs> you know, I so don't understand that, but whatever. <laughs> it yeah. may work for you, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, uh, I sit back today for a couple of hours, and then I'm like, oh, okay, fine. You going away all December? Sure, fine. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, that'll be a little story. Anyway, so no, so really good, this yeah, oh shit, yeah, I got things I got to do today. Oh my god. All right. All right. Bye. Good to hear from you. Yeah, same here.